This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Brooke Bartlett. Now, many people have heard the phrase culturally competent clinician, and I think that Brooke is a shining example of the kind of counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist that first responders and military personnel need to seek out. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into psychology, the cost of being a youth athlete, her takeaway as far as the pros and cons of the VA system, working with the first responder community, the unique challenges of the wildland firefighter, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brooke Bartlett. Enjoy. Brooke, I want to start by saying thank you so much for firstly being flexible and secondly becoming on the uh, Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I have a computer at home that is set up perfectly and I mirrored it on the new computer that I got and the damn thing doesn't want to work. So that's why we had to reschedule last time. Um, So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, I'm actually in Arkansas um the great state of arkansas but i live in southern california so i've been kind of doing a little bit of back and forth with with family for the last couple of months but um home base is in southern california so let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then Mm -hmm. tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings Yeah. So I was born in Fountain Valley, California. Um, I tell most people that I'm from Huntington Beach because a lot of people haven't heard of Fountain Valley, but they've heard of Huntington Beach, Surf City, USA. So Fountain Valley is is just a city that literally borders Huntington. I was born like a street away from city limits of Huntington Beach. So um, yeah, I have my uh, one brother, one older brother, and I have uh, my, my dad and my mom, Um, both were born in like East LA area. Um, they both were raised in, in poverty, actually my dad very much. So, um, and they both really worked really hard to get where they are today. Um, my dad ended up receiving, a an associate's degree and, and is a, is a salesman. Uh, and my mom works basically for, has worked for a while for a construction company doing admin, et cetera. So um, yeah, they're doing pretty well for themselves now. So when I think of East LA, I think of a Hispanic population. Were mm-hmm. they immigrants themselves? Yeah. So my dad, uh, my dad's mother is from Ecuador. Um, didn't speak any English. I unfortunately didn't get to meet her. She had passed before I was born. 
Um, so my dad was fluent in Spanish. Um, his dad, so my grandpa, uh, was, had a really, really interesting background. Um, he was, uh, he was, was in world war II, but he was basically like, a. Uh, I'm going to use the word secret spy, but there's probably like a more official word for it, but he spoke six or seven languages. Um, and I've seen him in a couple of history books, uh, in terms of like the, the secret spy group he was in, um, you know, getting Intel, et cetera. So he was, he was basically a mole, um, for the U S so he had a really just interesting background, um, you know, and, and he died when I was pretty young, but I was really close to him when I was little, um, and then my mom's side, um, my grandmother on my mom's side is from Mexico. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, Hispanic heritage in my background. So with your granddad serving the country in such an incredible way, what when you look back, what led them to poverty? <sighs> um, I've asked that question myself. Uh, you know, I my parents or my, my dad specifically has talked about how he, his, his father, you know, didn't talk much about the war, which is par for the course, you know, like, you know, makes sense. Most of them don't. Um, but it, it seemed like, uh, one thing came after another. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily get the gist that it was like recklessness with money, but, kind of one tragedy befell another. And then the next thing you know, he was um, really struggling financially. So I, I don't really know the details. My parents don't really either. So see, it's interesting because obviously we're going to get into you know, law enforcement and um, the military and fire, but I'm in the process of writing a book at the moment, a fiction this time. Um, and the kind of concept is multi-generational trauma. And mm -hmm. so, so many times, this came really from these interviews, so many people, and that's why I love these early stories. If you go back two generations, a lot of World War II stories, and you start to see that was where maybe some domestic violence or alcoholism or, you know, whatever, or just closed down, cold, unloving homes. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think one of the least spoken about element that I think is related to a lot of the trauma that we endure as children and in our profession is that chaos in the mind that I will absolutely put my head up, my, my head up, my, my hand up and mm -hmm. say, this was me too, where I didn't have the capacity to just simply manage my finances. And I ended up losing a home in the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Intergenerational trauma is, is a very real thing. The research on it is so fascinating, um, but it's a real thing. I mean, I, I don't know if you, I'm, have you looked into like epigenetics and all of that? Um, I'm very, very loosely educated on that subject. So not really. I mean, as am I, but I mean, epigenetics, I mean, the, there's a lot of researchers that have studied intergenerational trauma through epigenetics and epigenetics is basically how our genetic makeup slowly changes over generations based on what our ancestors have experienced. So, I mean, you know, when we use the word ancestors, it sounds like I'm talking about thousands of years ago, which certainly could be the case, but we're talking about grandparents, great grandparents, great, great grandparents. Um, and they're, but they've actually been able to study how the gen our genetic makeup is affected by, you know, say people they've done studies from Holocaust survivors and, and, and their kin, um, and, and can see the changes there. So it's a, it's a real thing. You know, a lot of people, and we'll talk a lot about this, but this thing, you know, something I really try and get across to people is that 
the physical and the mental are not two different things, right? There's real biological things that are going on that make our minds and our personalities who we are. And and epigenetics has really been a a part of the scientific literature that has shown that. Yeah. No, that's something I have heard is that initially they thought the DNA was just concrete and it wouldn't Mm -hmm. change. And now you're starting to see that you can actually shift the DNA in a positive way as well. And even Mm -hmm. the neuroplasticity side, we used to think that brain cells were brain cells. When you lost them, they were gone. And now we're realizing that you can actually regenerate and grow and adapt. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So you talked about Fountain Valley. I know where that is because I worked for Anaheim Fire for a few years. So I lived oh, in really? I lived in Huntington. I had I said Huntington too, but I think if you look at the postcode and zip code, we were technically Westminster. So oh, I had exactly okay. the yeah. same thing as you kind of leaning into the the cooler city. Yeah, Huntington Beach, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about that, because that's obviously a, a, you, your parents came from East L.A. Now you're in Orange County, which I think was was much more affluent, I'm assuming. So what was your upbringing like? Yeah. Um, you know, we were, I'd say we were lower middle class. Um, I certainly wasn't raised in poverty, but we were, you know, I think finances were really tight. You know, it was something that, um, you know, was always a topic of conversation and that, and that we had to look out for. So for the first, I think 12 years, um, we grew up in, um, uh, actually kind of a little bit closer to the Westminster border, Um, and, uh, from then on, we moved to where my parents still live in Fountain Valley, which is, you know, a nice middle-class neighborhood. But I mean, growing up, like I said, you know, finances were always a thing, you know, we, I, I, you know, I didn't go on my first plane ride until I was 15 years old. You know, we went on a trip on a plane because before that we couldn't afford it. So it'd be, you know, a trip to big bear type thing. You know, that was kind of like our vacation if we could do one, um, during the year, you know, kind of small trips like that, a trip to Palm Springs or something like that. So again, by no means poverty, um, but certainly um, my parents have, have over the years since then, you know, built their, built themselves up a little bit more and, in you know, they're, I'd say they're in the middle class now. So. Well, interesting yeah. thing. I was an Anaheim firefighter and Anaheim specifically, I would say we were well-paid or, you know, not, not well-paid as in above average, but it's, what a firefighter should be earning doing doing their job. But Orange County is such an expensive county to live in that you can actually be earning good money and still be struggling financially without any kind of, um, you know, overabundance of, of spending. Yeah. And I mean, especially now, I mean, it's it's gotten pretty bad. You know, you can have two people who make, um, you know, six figures and they still can't afford to buy a house in Orange County. Um so yeah, it's it's gotten to be a little bit ridiculous with the prices there. <laughs> it has. Well, when I moved to to California, that was I think I started in 05 and left in 08. So it was right before the the crash and I had people telling me James you got to get on the on the financial market there's this adjustable you know mortgage you can get and and I'm looking at the houses coming from Florida with Florida eyes and this 1950s you know 800 square foot house was three quarters of a million dollars. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking joking. There's no way in hell. But, you know, when you're born and raised in that area, you don't realize that 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 is just insane compared to 95% of the country. Yeah. And, you know, now I've lived in a few different parts of the country and now I see it. Although I was (laughs) living in Boston for four years and that is 
just as ridiculously expensive. But, um, you know, I lived in Texas and, you know, like I said, I've been in uh, spending a little bit of time in Arkansas and it's like, oh man, you look at these like beautiful 2,200 square foot brand new homes and they're like $250,000 and you're like, what? And then they'll ask me like, oh, you know, are you, are you gonna, are you gonna buy, you know, this year, you know? And I'm like, I just kind of like giggle and I'm like, no, not yet. Um, you know, and they're like, oh, well, you know, how much would a, their, their jaws just drop, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, when you're renting, will you have a nice big backyard? And I'm like, mm, probably not. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the average price for like a 900 square foot spot in a good area is, you know, 3000 to $4,000 a month. So they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. With a concrete backyard and a giant brick wall that separates you and the efficiency they built in the backyard. Exactly. I, I always tell people, listen, you know, I'm, I'm from Southern California, so I obviously have that bias. My family's there. Um, but I am just so used to that, the outdoor lifestyle. And I tell people that's what I, that's what I'm paying for. I'm certainly not paying for, you know, I understand that this is ridiculous, a ridiculous amount of money for where you see me living, but I'm paying for the, I'm paying for the lifestyle. Like I'm very, very active. You know, I, I need, I love that perfect weather year round. I love being able to wake up and say, what am I going to do with my day today? You know, on a weekend, instead of being like, Oh, well, it's too hot again, you know, can't go outside. So you just have to hibernate in your house until, you know, the, the sun goes down and then you can crawl out, you know, cause it's not a hundred degrees with 90% humidity. You know, I mean, I've lived in Houston, Texas, where it's, it's rough, you know, mm -hmm. well, I'm in, I'm in Florida, so I feel you completely. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how I view it. I mean, that's how I justify it. I should say it's that, okay, that's what I'm, I'm paying for the weather. Mm. We had, uh, had a guy, Michael Easter on the show and he had a book called the comfort crisis. And, you know, people always think of discomfort as, oh, I took a nice bath. You know, I, I did this extreme thing. And to me, it's like, no, I just live in Florida and go out during the day. That's, <laughs> that's an extremity <laughs> yeah. in itself. It's crazy how the body adapts. So, I mean, I think about that, you know, I, I went from Southern California to Boston, talk about complete opposite climates and experience like the frigid cold. And then I went from Boston to Houston, Texas, complete opposite climate. And in both places, I mean, I, I remember in Houston in my last couple of years, you know, I got really into sand volleyball and I'd be going out in the middle of the day in the summer to play like two on two sand volleyball, you know, in 105 degree weather, you know, and you'd have to bring your electrolytes and stuff because it's like dangerous to do that. But it's just it's just what you do. You know, you just kind of like adapt and get used to it. So, yeah, no, I can relate. Like I said, I, I was coming from England and then not even two years later, I'm in a fire academy in Miami you know, yeah. in the middle of the summer in bunker gear. And yeah. Yeah, I don't know how it didn't die, but we got through it somehow. <laughs> Well, you talked about being active. So in the kind of high school age, what were you playing then? Yeah. So I actually, in my former life, was a competitive athlete. So I was a tennis player. Um, so prior to me starting the road to becoming a psychologist, I thought I was maybe going to be a professional tennis player. My body had a different plan. So my body just got torn up, no chance. But yeah, I was uh, started playing tennis when I was five or six, which is actually pretty late in the competitive tennis world. Um, and played, uh, six days a week, 365 days a year, um, five hours a day 
So when I was in high school, um, I ended up going homeschool, which again, most people at that level do and, you know, played, played nationally. And um, then I got a full scholarship for, for tennis. So that was my number one sport. You know, you can't really, can't really divvy out any, any time there. Um, But then, yeah, my, my shoulder got all wrecked, my wrist got all wrecked. And I was like, well, time for plan B. (laughs) What age did you uh, encounter these injuries? So my shoulder, my wrist started when I was like 15. And honestly, like I still have a, um, like I need to get, I need to get some work done. Both of my injuries are like beyond PT repair in the sense of like there, it wasn't like a one-time injury. It was a overtime over usage wear and tear. Um, so my wrist, I started going to PT, you know, when I was like 15. So before even going to college, obviously I was still very much tennis player, Um, my shoulder started when I was in college. So like right when college started by the end of it, I was, um, taking like a a ridiculous amount of ibuprofen, um, just to get through. Cause you know, again, you're training three to five hours a day, um, not including, you know, your important mat, you know, competing and traveling and doing all that, but you're training three to five hours a day. And my shoulder was just so wrecked at that point. I mean, it was, I had a one of my trainers giving me deep tissue massages almost every day. Like it was like a whole routine just to get out on the court to practice. Cause my, my shoulder was so bad. It was really bad and it's still bad. <laughs> so, See, Well, this is a point I've made a lot on this show and it was purely coming from England sports are recreational mainly. So in the high school level, you're not having this elite level of competition. Now, of course, you know, sports like football, you know, soccer, there is a you know a path that can take you to professional soccer, but even then, you know most people that play football, when you graduated, you didn't have a load of injuries. I mean, even even rugby, which is a very you know physical sport, um, but you saw men and women continue to play sports as mm-hmm. they progress through adulthood. What I saw in in the U.S. is don't get me wrong. I mean, they get these children to an incredible rate of athleticism but there's a cost and you mm-hmm. have these children that were, you know, baseball players that their shoulders are blown out or they're football players and all their knees are completely smashed or tennis players where that one dominant arm just gets murdered. Yep. And, you know, th- to me, it's an interesting conversation to have where of course, you know, there's going to be competition and it's great to compete against other people, other countries, mm-hmm. but where is that line between performance and longevity of the children that you're in charge of? Yeah. That's a really great point. I've thought about that a lot. Similarly, um, that it's just in a way a very, I think it's can be a very unhealthy perspective. Um, so just it, it does set up a lot of people, children, kids to have injury, long lasting injuries like myself in adulthood. You know, um, and it's just this mindset. I actually talked about this a lot with our mutual acquaintance who introduced us. Um, when we met, you know, our, our conversations flipped a lot to like injuries and the body and all this. And, you know, this mindset, I still have it. You know, I, I quote, retired from tennis 10 years ago. And I still have this mindset of like, if I don't go 10 out of 10 in the gym in my workout, it doesn't count. You know, it's like, I got to just push, 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 push. I mean, it is literally still something I actively struggle with to like get my mind out of that. But I mean, for 
first 22 years of my life, that was, that's what was drilled in my head. You know, you got to go 10 out of 10, you know, if you're not sweating, if you're not exhausted, physically exhausted by the time you're done, doesn't really count. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a constant struggle. I try and incorporate now, you know, I really have to actively work on that. You know, if I'm, if I wake up or whatever reason that day, I'm just not feeling physically up to par, you know, instead of dragging myself to the gym, okay, suck it up and get to the gym, you know, I'll go for a walk, you know, or, um, or if I do go to the gym, I'll just, you know, I ride the bike for a little bit, a little bit, cause it does help me feel better a little bit, but instead of going 10 out of 10, I do something else that brings me joy or fulfillment instead of just pushing myself to a point that for what, you know, it's hard. It is. I'm actually, Miguel and I had a conversation a while ago and it was about CrossFit um, in the tactical space. And I think that it's a great modality, but there has to be an understanding of that undulation. And if you look at the programming of CrossFit, like one of the days is just a, used to be just a straight lift and that was it, which wasn't, you know, super taxing. And then there was another day that was a complete rest day out of the four, but it became this murder yourself every day in the gym. And don't, I, again, I subscribe to that too. Oh, I've had a stressful shift. Let me go murder myself and that will help me calm down, which is the complete opposite of the physiology of, you know, you're adding stress to stress. So yeah, understanding that, you know, you got to listen to your body and obviously there are some metrics as well. Um, that can tell you if you're in you know, a rested state. But most of us in this profession, especially as we age, that rest and recovery is way more important than you know that that red line workout. Even though it's good to get there sometimes to remind yourself of that discomfort. You know, the majority should be in that kind of lower zone. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that I still struggle with as well. You know, I think back to when I was still an athlete in and competing and training and like, man, I think about it. And I'm like, there was like almost, there was so little of rest and recovery. There was so little focus on that. And that's why my body's doing like, that's why my body is the way it is now. Um, and so it's still not something I put enough priority in, but I try to think about it a little bit more now, but to be honest, like at this point, it's just stopping the bleeding. Like, Unfortunately, I'm too far gone in that sense, right? Like, sure, I can make it worse and I don't want to do that. So I'm trying to not make it worse. But there's no in my in in terms of my injuries, there's no recovering from it. You know, it's it's the damage is done. um, And now I just want to prevent more damage. So I I know I think you have a background in physiology, right? Is that correct? Um, Yeah, I went went to um, University of North London and UF in exercise physiology. But I mean, that's that's academic, purely academic. Yeah. I'm just so, you know, if I always think about like some, you know, if I didn't do this route, the psychology route, I, you know, kinesiology, physiology, all that is just so fascinating to me. Um, yeah, not coincidentally, again, I think the mind and the body are so related, but um, yeah, all that just so fascinating to me talking to people who, you know, really have a deep understanding of that and they can go, take me beyond my level of understanding of like, shoulder hurt, shoulder bad, need to make sure shoulder doesn't hurt anymore. You know, <laughs> So they'll be like, take this, you know, iron is really good for this and this. And then if you do this 30 minutes before, that's when your body absorbs it the best. And, and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm surrounded by those people. And it's, it is fascinating. I mean, even like uh, collagen, I had um, uh, nutritionist on a little while ago, and she was saying exactly that the collagen will affect you know the whole body and the GI tract, especially, which is amazing. But if you want it to target, in my case, my jacked up knees, then again, you have to do it. I think it was 
I think it was within 30 minutes of doing that targeted exercise because the body is like, you know, hey, this is where we need the stuff. And so mm-hmm. it'll actually send it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's amazing. Yeah. But I think you can, you can't fix what's broken. But the more I learn about movement, um, you can definitely create a muscle structure around injuries mm-hmm. that will, you know, support it a lot better and alleviate a lot of the pain. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and I've tried to do that as much as possible. And I think I, I think I have, I mean, I think my shoulder should be a lot worse at this point, 10 years later. Um, you know, and I still with limitations, stay as active as I can. You know, I play, um, I play beach volleyball, right. I have to serve underhand. I can't serve at all. Um, you know, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah if your shoulder's no jacked, chance, no chance, you know, even if, you know, um, my boyfriend plays tennis and you know, he's a, he's a, he's a beginner, but you know, I'll go out there and hit with them or hit with some of his friends and I can't serve or anything, but underhand I can do for the most part until it starts to wear out. But, you know, I, I still, I still do things as much as I can. I just have to limit what I do, you know, I mean, in terms of like make, make accommodations for what I do. So, um, and when I first started like getting into these sports, you know, it was that mindset of like, no, you can handle it, like serve it, you know? Um, and then I was just like, why? why, why would I do that? What is it? I'm not, I'm not trying to be a D one volleyball player or a professional <laughs> player to serve it underhand. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I kind of, I've, I've kind of just adapted to that and I don't really think about it as much anymore. It's just, okay. Yep. No, I can't do that. Okay. I can do that. And I still enjoy my active lifestyle while working around my, my injuries. When I do yoga, cause my wrist is so bad, I can't put it down flat on the ground put weight on it. Um, so I stopped, I stopped doing yoga, which was a big part of my, my routine, um, for like two years, but I recently started doing it again and I just have weights and I, when I'm, you know, in down dog or anything like that. So when my knuckles are flat on the ground, my wrist doesn't hurt. So I'll do, you know, I'm like, I don't care what I look like. I walk in with weights into a yoga room and people are like, what is she doing? You know, I'm like, whatever. This is what gets me to do. You know, this is how I can do yoga. So you gotta flip it around. Like you don't use weights. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Trying, so. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, thank you for telling that story because I think it's important that we hear from, you know, the, the adults that have dealing with the injuries of some of this, you know, sporting, uh, sports training in its extreme to this day. And I've had so many people on here, whether it's TBIs from, you know, football, whether it's, you know, again, shoulders that are completely destroyed from baseball or, or swimming and, and gymnastics. And it's, it's, of course, they've reached an incredible point performance wise. But if we're not having that at what cost conversation, we're going to continually put our children into the meat grinder. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, then, so you get through the college experience, you realize that the, the physical side is, has kind of run its course. So talk to me about what took you into the world of psychology. Yeah. So I had a, I got my degree, my undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, so I actually started off uh, going for a degree in biology and um, didn't do so hot in those classes because I was like, maybe I'll, you know, maybe maybe in the future I'll become a, like a medical doctor or something. And I was just bombing out of those classes. And I was like, hmm, well, I've always been really fascinated with why people are the way they are. So let me try psychology. Um, and so I got my degree in psychology. And uh, when I finished college, it was like a very weird time period for me because in a way I was 
having to find a new identity out of being an athlete. And it was really, really tough. Um, like, you know, for those who, you know, some people don't understand like the, the, when you literally train your entire life, this wasn't a recreation sport. This was my life. I, you know, I gave up school. I gave up going to hang out with friends. I, you know, five hours a day, 300, there's no season. It's just all year round. I was like, who am I? Like, what am I doing with my life? All of a sudden I'm not spending five hours of my day every day doing this. Like, I don't know who I am. So it was a, a really big limbo period. And I'm, and I kind of started, you know, well, I'm still interested in psychology. Maybe I can do something with that. So I kind of started to research a little bit about psychology, but during the time I was like, okay, I guess I need to get a job. So I got a job working at a, um, Porsche Audi Bentley dealership in Newport beach. So I worked on their, at their reception desk during that time. And, and, um, again, just kind of trying to figure out like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Um, so I was like, Hey, you know, there's this whole thing about like being a psychologist, like that looks kind of cool. Uh, you know, like I work with people, you know, I'm really interested in trauma. Like I've always just been drawn towards it. I wonder if I could do that. So I started looking around into different things, you know, really was drawn to forensic psychology. Um, cause again, I've always been really drawn to that, like drawn to trauma and, and all of that. And, um, basically decided that I knew at the time I couldn't get into a PhD program because all I had was a bachelor's degree in psychology and PhD programs are extremely competitive. Um, so I was like, I'll apply for a master's degree. Um, so I started or I applied to like seven or eight programs throughout the country and I got rejected. I had gotten rejected by all of them, all of them. And cause my grades were like, they were good. I was a good student, but they were, you know, again, my focus was tennis. Like, yeah, you know, I got like B's, I got B's, but I wasn't like a spectacular student or anything like that. And so my shoot for the stars program that I applied to was Boston university. Um, and I was like, they have the, the VA, the national center for PTSD there in Boston. And if I went there, I could network and collab, you know, and, and meet people there and then maybe get a job there before applying for my PhD. So next thing you know, seven, seven out of the eight hard rejects, boom, thanks for applying. No, thanks. You know, you're out. And I was like, oh, great. The only school I hadn't heard back from was Boston University. And I was like, no chance I'm getting in there. That was the most competitive school I applied to. There's, there's no chance. Um, and then the next thing you know, I get a, I get an email and I see congratulations. And I was like, what? So I packed up and moved from California where I'd never left and went to Boston, Massachusetts and, and uh, for their master's program. Um, the really interesting thing is that my advisor there, um, who I, I actually need to email soon. I, I typically email him once every like two to three years, just because, uh, you know, I, I credit him with giving me this opportunity to become what I am now. Um, but I basically asked him at one point, I said, why did I get accepted here? <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what was going on? And he said, uh, I wrote my personal statement about how I was an athlete. And that's because that's all I had to draw on. I couldn't say, look what I look at what labs I've what psychology labs I volunteered in and what I've done. I was just like, uh, yeah, I got a degree in psychology. OK, but like I was an athlete trained my whole life and I'm really, really hardworking. And I'm going to I this is what I'm going to do in this career. And so he goes, I vow, I, you know, I told the whole committee like a, a D1 athlete like that is very hardworking. You got to give them a chance like 
you know, you got it. You can't look at like, because she doesn't have that much experience in psychology, it's because she was working so hard in this other area of her life. And so it was actually my athlete background that got me into that program. He, 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 uh, advocated for me, uh, for that reason. I'm so thankful that he did. That's amazing. What you think about as well, the psychology that's woven into the game of tennis, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of, you know, analysis, but there is psychology in there too. Oh, I saw a sports psychologist. Yeah. Um, I started to get real bad performance anxiety and yeah, it is a in your head sport. I mean, every sport certainly is psychology and I'm sorry, tennis and golf. You are your own worst enemy in that sport. I mean, it is a, a solo sport and you know, if you do great, great, you, you do great and you take all the glory, anything other than greatness, you know, you just knock yourself down. So it, it can really get into your head. The documentary that came out was a couple of years ago. Now the weight of gold, I think really opened my eyes to the element of not only the athlete, but the athlete that's transitioned out. And it's, there's so many parallels between that and the tactical profession. So you touched on that identity struggle whether in yourself or other athletes, you know, talk to me about that concept. I mean, you have a child that from five or younger has done nothing but gymnastics or tennis or or football. They get to a pinnacle of some sort and then one day they're not there anymore. I mean, it it literally was a feeling of like, I don't know who I am. Like what, what purpose do I have? What purpose do I have if I'm not playing tennis? I mean, it was, what do I have to offer the world? Um, I mean, it's just, it, the, it was a limbo state to say the least. I mean, it just felt like limbo. I was just, just floating in existence. You know, every day was like, I wake up and I'm like, okay, like, what do I do now? Like, I'm not getting up to go into the the training room to get a deep tissue massage or take an ice bath and then getting on the court. I mean, it's just to say that your lifestyle changes is an understatement, right? But like, the lifestyle is kind of the tangible change. It's the stuff that goes on internally that is really hard to deal with. And, you know, I've, I've, I've connected with some of the, my, you know, patients over the years, um, veteran patients, um, you know, a little bit talking about the identity loss. Obviously there's two different things, but you know, a lot of people and first responders who retire or in the, from the military retire, it's kind of this identity kind of like, well, what's, what do I do now? Who, who am I now? I can't call myself an athlete anymore. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing that kind of difficulty transitioning out of that lifestyle. So you talked about forensic psychology, um, for people listening, can you explain that kind of school of thought? Yeah. So forensic psychology, I mean, it can be a couple different things. What I was really interested in is more so kind of the like serial killer side of forensic psychology. So, um, working in prisons and working with kind of the the what people would think are the most dangerous people um, on this planet. Um, and forensic psychologists in that role basically spend a lot of time with this this person um, profiling them, psychologically profiling them. They talk to them, you know, they might do assessments with them, but really profiling them kind of what what are their more what is their background? How does this fit into what they ended up doing? you know, if we're talking about a serial killer, how does this fit fit into, you know, what, what was their childhood like? Um, you know, what, what were their motivations? You know, why did they target this population? You know, this, this type of person, um, forensic psychology could also, um, a lot of people in forensic psychology also do like, um, it's a lot of assessment. That's basically forensic psychology is less on the, 
let me help you clinical side and more on the profiling assessment. Um, you know, so there's forensic psychologists who do assessments a lot for court cases, not necessarily serial killers, but any type of criminal court cases, like uh, forensic psychologists get hired on to, again, provide for the court, like a understanding of, you know, this person scored high in, in narcissism and da, 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 and this can play into X, Y, Z, you know, provide objective, um, objective scientific uh, feedback for that could potentially go into people understanding how this person came to be who they are. So the Netflix show Bundy is very big at the moment. Actually, my, my wife asked me to sit down and watch it with her and I couldn't even make it through the first episode because yeah. I think coming from where we've come from, you know, yeah. there's, there's a reality woven in there. But one show I really did like was Mindhunters, which was the oh. inception of forensic psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, with the studying that, yeah, I know it wasn't your area of expertise ultimately, but when you were kind of um, learning in that space, what were some of the common denominators that led some of these people to become so psychotic later in life? Trauma. Trauma. That's what it is. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's, of course, I always like my big spiel too, is letting people know you can't point to one thing and say, that's why this person's doing this. I mean, there's biological, genetic, you know, environmental, but trauma. I mean, that is a major, major aspect. When you look at, at these people's backgrounds, it's very rare. I don't know, you know, like the, the, the Dahmer stuff is on Netflix right now as well. And, um, you know, he actually had what you might call probably one of the least traumatic childhoods, but still complete chaos in his household. And, um, you know, caught, you know, found his mom overdosed, like still really bad stuff. But when you compare it, you know, to some of these other guys and gals, you know, they're, it's really bad, but trauma is the absolute, I mean, and that's really why I'm was always drawn since childhood. I've been, people always ask me, how'd you get in? How'd you get into being a trauma psychologist? You know? And I'm like, it sounds cheesy, but I've literally been interested in this since I've been drawn to it since I was a kid. I've been always interested in it. So um, yeah, that's a big, big factor with, with these serial killers. Now, an interesting element is a couple of people have asked who are psychologists to come on the show. You know, that's, that's something that I believe. So you look at gangs, you look at addiction, you look at suicide, you look at homicide. You know, so often, as you said, there's elements that if you could go back in someone's life, you'd be like, well, shit, you're, you're heading in a really, really bad direction. You know, we mm-hmm. can see it coming when it comes to the pedophiles though. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a different thought process with that specific group of people that it isn't always attributed to trauma. Have you seen anything similar yourself? So I haven't, I, I'll be completely transparent. I haven't worked with pedophiles. I mean, at least not to my knowing um, for the most part. I, I guess I have worked with a couple of veterans that have um, a ding against them for that. Um, but I have on my own, you know, because it's just all this stuff is so interesting to me, like watch documentaries, read about it. Um, and you know, I remember reading this story. I think it was on, uh, was it This American Life? It was uh, several years ago, but it was about uh, this person who was uh, a pedophile and, he, it, you know, an unoffending pedophile. And this person, obviously, it was all anonymous, but this whole thing was about this person being like, I need help and no one will help me. Um, and I don't want to hurt anyone. Uh, so, and that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole of like, interesting that this person has the insight to know that whereas you don't really see that in like a you know like a serial killer then they don't they don't 
have any of that kind of forethought or care in in the first place. So, um, but yeah, I can't really speak too much to to pedophiles because it's but it's very far away from any experience I've had. Yeah, no, it was just interesting because that was the one group that I got the impression because these, yeah, we were talking a lot about childhood trauma in these conversations. But it was like, no, that's a that's a complete biochemistry disaster that's leading to that. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, it goes against any, you know, any yeah. culture. I mean, they existed in every culture, obviously the Romans and the Greeks and everything. But I think, you know, the, the most of the world has accepted that's a pretty heinous kind of mm-hmm. way of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about why you chose the field of psychology that you chose. Yeah. So I mentioned a couple of times that like ever since I was little, I, I, I have been drawn to trauma. Um, I was seven years old going to the library and, and wouldn't get, you know, your fictional little kid books. I'd be getting books on, I'd get Ken Burns, you know, Vietnam war and, you know, nonfiction, um, biographies on, you know, key players in world war two or, serial killers or all this stuff my parents were like what the hell is wrong with our kid you know I remember my mom would like hand me this like you know like chicken soup for the soul book and I'd be like no and I'd I'd grab the other thing um so this was by far an always innate interest of mine um and so you know fast forward to my young adult life and I'm you know now pursuing this you know when I'm in go to get my master's degree. I mean, even in, even in undergrad, I remember abnormal psychology was my favorite class by far and abnormal psychology. Again, you're learning about basically different mental health disorders. And I remember when they started talking about PTSD, I'm just like really, really interested in it. So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things I feel like you hear different stories about people, whether it be they end up as psychologists or whatever else. And it's just this, it's hard. It's a thing that's hard to explain, but it's, it's just what I was drawn to. I mean, it's just what fascinated me. And again, it's always just this question in my head that I had ever since I was a kid of, well, how did this person become this way? Why did they become the way they are? Or how did this person persevere through this? That was always my thing too. You know, I'd read non-fictional stories of people who did just amazing things. I mean, Unbroken is one of my favorite novels of all time. I don't, have you read it? I haven't. No, it's been recommended many times and I haven't seen the film either. Oh, yeah. I mean, the film's okay. I mean, film's actually pretty good, but it's it's a very shortened version of the book is just, I've read it like three times. Um, but, you know, the, the character in there, Louis Zamperini, I mean, overcame the most horrific, I mean, what you could ever imagine anyone like make it out literally alive and makes it out alive and suffered, you know, substance abuse, domestic violence, all this stuff, and then persevered through that. So, you know, when I'm all of a sudden, you know, at Boston University getting my master's degree, um, my mind was just on, I need to get to the National Center for PTSD and start working there because, you know, once again, you know, this, I had an abnormal psychology class and uh, my master's program. And I'm just like, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. There was really never any doubt for me that I wouldn't be specializing in trauma. Um, and then as I go along, you know, it's not like I knew exactly what part of trauma I'd specialize in, but I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be trauma. So. 
so as you progress through that then and you end up in that field um what were some of the the kind of jarring moments from the academic space to when you were actually faced with men and women that were going through these um, conditions in the academic space um so i was also heavy into research i'm a like you know, I've published a lot, written grants, like done all that. And I think it's really academic research is really important. And at the same time, it a lot of times doesn't transfer into the real life. <laughs> um, it's very different from clinical research, which is, you know, you're you're running like randomized control trials with actual people, um, like like doing uh treatments. But so uh, academic research is is very uh, what's the word? Like not clean cut, but very like when you have someone with trauma and you have someone with low distress tolerance, someone has higher chances of alcohol use. Right. And that's all true. But there are generalizations. Right. And so when you get in front of someone who has a very complex past and then they go into the military and then maybe they were deployed and then when they were deployed, maybe they under orders, uh, killed a kid, you know, and then they come home and then they have a wife and a new baby that they don't even know. Um, all of this is just swirling around and it's not clean cut because you think you go in there to address, okay, this person is, has PTSD because of their deployment, which sure, that's what, you know, maybe put it over the edge, but there's all these other factors that go into it. So you can't just view it in this one little box of like combat trauma, PTSD. Let's treat that, right? So there's all these other factors you have to consider, not only in their past, their childhood, what their upbringing was like. Did they have any trauma then? You know, what their relationship with their partner is now, what their relationship with their kids are now, what their relationship with their family is now, all these things. So it's really different when you're actually in front of a person. It's a lot more complex. There's a lot of other factors that pop up. So when I first started this podcast, um, you know, it was after listening to other people on shows and, you know, realizing that there was so much great information out there that just wasn't getting into the silos of the fire service. And then this, this ended up growing to, you know, extend way beyond just my profession. But I will always credit Jake Clark, who was uh, um, law enforcement and military prior and then created a thing called Save a Warrior, which is a, a kind of retreat for um all kinds of people, but especially first responders and military. And he really opened my eyes to the impact of childhood trauma on what we see. Because if you look at the a lot of the kind of messaging in our professions, it's, well, you were in Afghanistan or you were at the Grenfell fire in London, and that's why you've got these things. Mm-hmm. When you start to think about the question, well, what happened to you before you ever put the uniform on, that opens an entire Mm-hmm. common sense conversation of what is your foundation like yeah so talk to me with all these kind of you know members of the 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 uh, service professions or the uh, tactical professions that you've worked with about the element of childhood trauma that's contributing to to this kind of crisis that they're in when they've already entered these professions it's so prominent it's incredibly prominent i mean of course not every person that i see has childhood trauma but by far more than not do. And at best, they have a chaotic childhood, right? Um, Meaning like maybe they haven't been sexually 
assaulted as a child or beaten or whatever else, but, you know, they had a broken home and their parents fought a lot or, or, you know, one of their parents was really leaned on them emotionally too much and didn't let them be a kid. You know, I mean, it is so incredibly prominent. And, you know, another thing that I was always so interested in, you know, innately growing up, not only why do people become the way they are, but you can set two people next to each other who've experienced the same trauma and maybe one has PTSD and one doesn't. Why? Right. And so sometimes I've heard people be like, use that as like a, you know, as particularly in the military or when I'm around my first responders, you know, like, Oh, you know, that's, that's all BS. You know, I've, I've experienced all that and I'm fine, you know, and it's like, great, I'm glad you're good. Right. But that's, it just, it, it, it doesn't, it's not that clean cut. So when you have these, you know, you can have two people experiencing the same thing and all that other stuff plays into how does, when they experience, when they go have a deployment or when they experience a trauma in adulthood, um, all those factors play a part in determining what develops after that. Right. So it's, it's really interesting to see, um, the differences in, people that I've been around and worked with that have generally stable backgrounds versus the more prominent type that I see, which is really uh, abusive, trauma, chaotic, broken, et cetera. One of the huge surprising elements to me was how many men were sexually abused as children. Mm-hmm. Was that was that a kind of realization through your eyes as well? Yeah. I, you know, it's actually really terrifying to me. Like I've talked about this with my boyfriend and other people, like from my perspective as a trauma psychologist, obviously I'm exposed to kind of like consistently exposed to like the worst of the world. Right. So my perspective is a little bit different. And in terms of like, you know, secondary trauma is a real thing, right. You know, you're always hearing these things or seeing them when I'm responding on scene, but it's incredibly incredible to me how many people are sexually assaulted. I mean, men and women, like, you know, obviously tons of women, but there's a lot of men in there. I've worked with so many veterans that are males that were sexually assaulted. I mean, MST among males is a major thing. Um, and childhood sexual abuse is a major thing. I mean, it's so prominent. So again, I get this, you know, uh, you know, I'm not working at the VA anymore, but I'd get a a new patient and okay, you know, combat veteran, three deployments, this and that. And then five sessions in, they're like, yeah, I was assaulted, you know, when I was a kid and you're like, okay, well, well, like this, this plays into this. Right. So, um, it's incredibly common. It's horrific. I had a guy on Jeff Thompson who, when I was a teenager, he was, he was a bouncer and he wrote books on fighting. And, you know, being a very meek, skinny teenager, I bought all his books thinking that was going to be the solution. And I did martial arts and all this stuff too. But, you know, here's a revered tough guy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, decades go by. I start a podcast after a you know, sort of career in the fire service. And I forget what it happens, but he pops into my mind or someone mentions him on an on a interview. Um, and so I reached out to him and he came on the show. Mm-hmm. I had no idea the conversation we were about to have, but he was explicit in the sexual abuse that he was a victim of by his martial arts instructor as a young boy 
and that how that led him even to the kind of sexual self-abuse. And I've heard this a lot, you know, when people are abused, their, their interpretation of their own sexuality and, you know, what sex looks like mm-hmm. is completely distorted. So it was absolutely fascinating and such a courageous conversation. But yeah, you have projecting, you know, on the outward side, this man and, and his coping mechanism was violence. So that's, mm-hmm. that was how he, you know, dealt with it. Yeah. And to have that, you know, 360 degree, um, kind of experience to come back and be this this kind calm you know incredible human being now that had to process so much trauma um it was it was incredible but yeah so so many of these men that we see you know with the muscles and the tattoos and the shaved heads and the mm-hmm. profession that you know everyone reveres i mean sadly behind a lot of them are some very you know heartbreaking stories there really are and it's always interesting to me when I see like research cited of like, you know, um, of like statistics of how many men are sexually assaulted. And I'm always like, okay, well, that's a huge, um, you know, undersell. Like that's, that's not reflective, right? Because there's such a stigma, particularly for men, um, you know, gotta be tough, you know, in the military, first responders, et cetera. Like, you got to be tough. You got to. So the stigma surrounding it as well, which which women ex- experience as well. Don't get me wrong. Women undoubtedly experience sexual assault more often. That's that's not even an argument. Um, however, there are a lot more men than people realize that experience it. But the culture that we have as a society, but also particularly in the populations that I work with, military and first responders, that is even more of a keep your, I got to keep my mouth shut about this. Right. So it's extremely underreported. Yeah. I mean, again, I I can attest to that just based on the people that I've interviewed and I haven't, it's not a mental health podcast. It's not like I'm constantly seeking out people, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that have that particular background. In fact, I just had a, a guy who's one of the revered strength and conditioning coaches on, and, you know, the goal was obviously to talk about lifting and recovery. And the first 40 minutes, we talked about the chaos that was in his family. He had a World War II veteran. He had a, a Vietnam vet as his brother. And, you know, it was it was a maelstrom you know, that was occurring in his family home. So, yeah, when you take the time to open the door and actually create, and there's a stigma around this phrase, but the safe space, someone to really be vulnerable, it's it's heartbreaking to hear some of the upbringing that some of these men and women had. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot more common than than people realize. So you found yourself working with the VA. Um, you know, I've heard a mixture of of kind of perspectives of VA mental health care. So I don't want to load the question, but as you kind of enter that field, talk to me about your role and and some of the pros and some of the cons of the way it was being done at that time. So yeah. Um let's see. So I spent three years at the National Center for PTSD in Boston. I also worked at the uh, VA in Houston. And then I did my internship and got my postdoctoral fellowship hours um, from the VA in San Diego. So I spent a lot of time in the VA. Now, the pros. Um, Man, I've met some of my best, uh, you know, some of my best patients are from from the VA. It is a... um, population that some of those people are so incredibly grateful to have the help. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in that, in that population that wouldn't be able to afford therapy or treatment 
you know, outside of the VA. And that is something that, 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 um, how grateful they are and thankful they are to have that is, is so genuine. Um, and that's something I don't really get in that same sense outside of it for the most part. So that, that's, that's a pro. Um, another pro is that there's so many different at every VA, there's your different clinics, right? So you have a, like I worked in the PTSD clinics. I worked in the inpatient PTSD clinics. I worked in the substance abuse clinics. They have clinics for chronic pain. They have behavioral medicine clinics, you know, um, like postpartum depression. They have clinics specifically for um, psychosis, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, et cetera. Um, And that's, you know, it's such a um, inter, it's such a connected um, uh, facility that you work at institution that you work at where, you know, you have a lot of like support in the sense of, you know, if I am starting to see a patient and pretty quickly realize in the first couple of sessions, that I think this person is experiencing psychosis, which has happened a lot. I, I, I don't work with psychosis. I don't specialize in it. So, you know, you need someone who specializes it. I can refer him out or consult with someone. That's a huge thing that you don't get when you're in a private practice or, you know, running your own business, like, like I am, you have to really seek out people, you know, to network and to be able to consult with people. So that that's a huge pro as well. Um, there was also a lot of cons to it. Um, you know, I, I left the VA and I, for a reason, um, you know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things about every VA that for some reason, just things don't work in sync. So what happens is there's a lot of veterans that may not be getting the care that they need because, you know, HR is, hasn't processed something and it takes them four or five months to do so. And then the, you finally see the veteran or I'll, I'll do a, I would do like a, um, like a first session kind of like screener type thing to make sure that they were a good fit for the PTSD clinic and they'd come out hot and be angry at me. And I'm like, I just died. I just met you a minute ago. And they're like, you know, my disability thing hasn't been processed. This hasn't happened. This is the third person you guys just been sending me around. It's been eight months. I've been trying to get therapy. This is ridiculous. And I'd be like, I know I agree. And I'm sorry. It's not me, but I like, you know, just kind of validating them and being like, your anger is validated. Your anger is validated. Um, you know, the other aspect of that is, is it is, I mean, this could be a pro or a con, depending how you're looking at it. When you're wanting to get training, when you're new to doing clinical work, you know, you have these really severe populations, particularly if you're working with PTSD, you know, you get really great training in like really complex presentations, like the most severe complex presentations. And I'm thankful for that towards the end when I'm, you know, ready to just be on my own, open up my own business, you know, I just need to finish this. It's like, it's exhausting. It's, it's emotionally, spiritually, and physically exhausting to work consistently with that severe, um, of a population. Uh, and that really, really wore down on me, um, as well. So, Pros and cons to it. You know, I understand why people stay at the VA, you know, it's security and, you know, you can do really great work there, but there's a lot of things in the background that I think hold really great psychologists 
back from being able to do what they can do because of all the, the red tape in the background. Yeah, I mean, I've seen in, in fire departments, I mean, there's a small, tiny compared to the VA, but, mm-hmm. you know, even then, I mean, mismanagement, egos, I mean, there's so many different things that can can trickle down to an absolutely horrendous environment that leads to responder suicide, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, one thing I've been told is that in the military, PTSD can be self-reported versus in the first responder professions, you got to fight tooth and nail to get one of these men or women that diagnosis. What is your uh, perception of that? Yeah. So it's not as easy as just being self-reported. You have to go do like a, an assessment with someone and, you know, then you have to go through the disability department. And I honestly don't even know ex- like the protocol of what they do, but, but I have certainly come across malingering. I mean, to put it plainly, there is, has been times, but honestly, personally, I have not come across it that much. There have been a couple of cases that really stick out to me where it was like, yeah, you know, I'd be talking with my supervisor, like, yeah, this is not adding up. This isn't adding up, you know, you you know, they'll, what they're reporting, you know, I specialize in a, in a evidence-based assessment for PTSD and, they knew what to say on it, but it just wasn't adding up. Um, so I have definitely seen it. I definitely have colleagues that have seen it. Um, I just don't know if it's that. I, I don't know. I, I just, in my experience, I've spent so much time working at a VA. I would think I'd seen it a lot more, but I, I really haven't seen it. At least nothing that stands out a lot um, too too often. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. I, I think the problem is when you have anything there's going to be an abuse. I mean, you look at um, welfare or, you know, tax cuts or whatever it is, welfare system, you know, benefits a lot of people, you know, uh, unemployment will get people back on their feet and, and be able to get back in the workspace. But of course, you're going to have the people that abuse it. They have the Escalade on the front, front, you know, driveway of their house in supposedly poor conditions. I mean, we've seen it as paramedics, but then you have the same thing in the corporate space and, you know, billion dollar companies that abuse that same system. But, yeah. you know, I, I think that that ability to self-report, because I think what I, what I was told, well, the understanding is, you know, if you, if you are struggling, you can just say I'm struggling. Whereas in the first responder space, to say to, to qualify for PTSD, you have to prove or which incidents were you on and, you know, and all these other factors, which is such a huge barrier to entry that I can see a lot of people probably just like, all right, never mind, fuck it. Oh, yeah. Also, like the stigma that comes along with it. But um, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, the other thing with like with the VA that honestly was more of an issue to me or like in terms of, you know, the disability is, is uh, there was a lot of people that I worked with that were real had a, like a really bad case of PTSD or were actually really struggling. However, almost like the disability aspect of it reinforced their non-recovery. Like, you know, a major uh, symptom of PTSD is avoidance. So typically people stop in the most severe cases, they'll like stop going to work. I mean, you know, they don't want to be around people. They're afraid to leave their house. Everywhere is dangerous. Everyone is dangerous. And so, you know, they got this disability and it's like, I need to, you know, while I'm doing treatment with you, I'm taking the next four months off of work. And, you know, I'm like, ah, that's actually counterproductive to what we're trying to do here. Right. So it's kind of like reinforcing um, 
um that and and that's so that's kind of was my biggest beef with it is like this this is at times not it's worsening them it's it's not helping them but now what about the prescription element because a lot of people have had on here that it seems to be the same kind of comment i tried to get help and they just threw meds at me yeah so i am a big proponent to skills over pills um Listen, I've worked with a couple really great psychologists or psychiatrists who are those psychiatrists are those that can prescribe medication. Psychologists do not. But more often than not, I mean, yeah, they go to a psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist just puts them on meds. And listen, medication is can be at times necessary. If you're talking about psychosis of any kind, you need to be on medication. It's there is no question about it. But, you know, and for some, a, a, a short period of time with medication can be very helpful in conjunction with evidence-based treatment. But medication on its own or certain types of medication that are very commonly prescribed to individuals with PTSD and anxiety disorders is not only not helpful, it's harmful. I'm talking um, benzodiazepines. I see it all the time and it is infuriating, infuriating to me. Um, Benzodiazepines, you take it and you immediately calm down. Great. That's great for someone who's suffering from severe anxiety, right? But what happens is it exacerbates the issue. And not only that, benzodiazepines are incredibly addictive as well, but it worsens whatever PTSD, anxiety disorder, et cetera, that you have drastically. It prevents recovery. It doesn't only worsen it, it prevents them from getting better. So I have been working, you know, there's been times when I'm four or five sessions in with someone we're making, you know, we're doing an evidence-based treatment, which means basically like a protocol, like, you know, it's not just talk therapy, like there's a very specific structure of what we're doing. And then they're like, I saw my psychiatrist this week and they prescribed me X, Y, Z. And I'm like, why, why? You know, and I'm not like legally allowed. I'm not allowed to be like, don't take them. I can't do that. So I'm like, okay, well, let me give you a little bit of psychoeducation about what that is and how it might affect what we're doing here. So I see it all the time and it's really, really frustrating. So what you've heard fits fits the mold. <laughs> now you touched on addiction um, in the fire service, for example, you know, I've, I've lost friends to opiate overdoses. I've, you know, absolutely seen alcoholism as, as a you know huge crutch in in the first responder professions there's talk of, of suicide that's the big thing you know that's the, that's the kind of tip of the iceberg to me the base is the addiction element and of course anxiety and depression hasn't got to a, a crisis level yet but usually that's the the coping mechanism what was your perspective on the level of addiction in in the populations that you were working with oh i mean in it in the first responder populations, it's through the roof. Um, like you said, the two I see the most alcohol um, and like opioids, painkillers, et cetera, um, through the roof. It's really interesting. So I, you know, worked with the Houston fire department for five years. Um, a lot of, a lot on the research side and also directly, you know, directly with them. So I'd respond on scene, you know, I'd, I'd have two days a week where I'd see, you know, have appointments with them. Um, and 
it's weird because, you know, they'd pop on a pop on a, you know, drug test for marijuana or something, you know, maybe they smoked once like a few weeks before and yet they can show up at the station, either still kind of drunk or extremely hungover, right? Like multiple times. And it's kind of like a little slap on the wrist, keep it on the down low. That's what I would see over and over again. And I'm like, well, this is a problem. Um, so yeah, the addiction part, the abuse, the uh, substance abuse is huge, as I'm sure you're aware of it for, for the reasons why it's a, it's a, a, a means to cope. It's a means to shut things out. Um, and there's a lot that first responders need to feel, you know, rightfully so feel they need to cope with and, and shut out. I always tell the people I work with, you know, it's substance abuse, you know, instead of telling someone like, this is bad, you need to stop doing it. I'm like, this is a coping mechanism. Like it is. So, but this coping mechanism, unfortunately is causing, you know, some significant um, problems in many areas of your life. And so we want to replace it with another coping mechanism, but don't be, don't be mistaken. Like this is a coping mechanism and it worked for some period of time. So. I wrote a book uh, about, God, almost three years ago now. Um, it was about a couple of years ago because it was during COVID. But when I was writing it, I, I came across a, an analogy. Someone had just made a comment, but it, it totally reframed the way I described the addiction element when it came to mental health. Because you hear this thing, oh, your bucket is overflowing. You know, There's too much trauma in there and it spills over. But that doesn't really allow you to apply the addiction element into that that um, example. So to me, it was the opposite. Okay. Imagine if you, you, you're a healthy person, the bucket is supposed to be full of healing contents. You know, the, the fluid is a positive thing. And then you have childhood trauma and some, some, you know, holes are punched in that, that bucket. And then you add sleep deprivation and you're a firefighter and you, there's more holes and the, the fluid starts leaking out. The body tells you, I need that to be full. Mm-hmm. And ideally, I want it to be full with daylight and community and tribalism and and good food and mm-hmm. um, you know love and all that. But if you can't get that, then alcohol, opiates, that will suffice. But mm-hmm. then, as you put those in, that yep. starts perforating more holes in the bucket. Yeah. And I think that getting people to understand that that root is still mental health challenges, mm-hmm. but you know your replacing as you said a, a healthy coping mechanism that will also heal those those holes you know that the love of a family that the mindful practice um yoga mm-hmm. but instead you're putting it but that toxic content is now exasperating it and, and perforating that bucket even more and so yeah. the more you bleed out from that that bucket the more demand there is to fill it with anything and that's what i see that downward spiral of addiction that is a great way to put it. So there's actually, which is the the theory, theoretical foundation that I kind of view this from, which is exactly what you're talking about. Um, it's it's a form of like uh, economics, uh, but applied to uh, addiction and substance abuse. A couple of my um, good friends in the field, colleagues, this is what they this is what they research and study. But it's exactly what you're talking about. So in kind of like it's the same thing, but switched around the perspective. So it's basically like if you had a pie, right? And you see someone with substance abuse or addiction and, you know, almost the whole pie except for a, a small sliver is, you know, alcohol, right? And then that small sliver could be, you know, family or whatever it is. The idea is instead of being like, you know, like stop that, 
you know, stop drinking, abstinence, like that's really bad. You shouldn't be doing that. It's more so like until someone is able to fill that pie with other things that are fulfilling, the the substance itself has taken over every fulfilling aspect of their life in a way. So the more time, the more the deeper someone gets into addiction, um, of course, it could be physically addicting and all that as well. But, you know, they spend more time uh, trying to obtain their substance of 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 choice. They spend more time thinking about their substance of choice. They spend more time recovering from their substance of choice. So, you know, they wake up hungover or whatever it is, or they wake up and need another beer. You know, they're not getting up to go for a run anymore or go for a walk or do these things that they used to enjoy. Um, so it's kind of that idea of what you're talking about where, you know, all of a sudden there's another hole and it started starting to drain out. So not only do we need to put a patch over that hole, but now we need to refill that cup. Because if you take away the addiction and all you do is take away the addiction, you still got an empty cup or near empty cup. You got to fill it back up with other stuff. And if you don't, it's going to come back. Absolutely. Now, with the extreme side, I mean, again, we're almost going back to the serial killer conversation. But again, a few conversations I've had that psychosis that you get because i mean ultimately suicide i would i would argue is a form of psychosis where your brain is so miswired that you believe that you're a burden to the world Mm -hmm. and selflessly make the choice to remove yourself from your family your community because you think you are the problem which is completely Mm -hmm. the reverse of 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 a a healthy mind how you should be thinking mm-hmm. but have but it's interesting because i've had a couple of people that said you know i was ready to shoot up a post office or i was ready to commit murder mm-hmm. talk to me about the relationship between suicide and homicide through your eyes so i think um homicide can come more from a place of like anger this isn't you know like I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at everything around me. Suicide is more kind of what you're talking about. Like, uh, you know, I see it more of like, they'd be better off. You know, I, I need to do them a favor and, you know, get out of here type thing. I've, you know, worked with individuals with homicidal ideation, homicidal intent. Um, and I, I, from, in my experience, it's a lot more of like, like either the world, you know, the world was unfair to me and, you know, this is the outcome and almost kind of like I'm justified in doing this or, you know, I think I'm justified in doing this because of whatever it is, whether there's, you know, these people were wrong to me or the system was wrong to me. Um, I think that's kind of the difference is like, this is better off for them. I'm, I'm a, I'm toxic. I got to get out of here versus I got to, you know, you deserve this. Like you did this to me type of thing. Have you had any kind of um, time, have you spent any time with the psychology of some of these school shooters and, and kind of delved into the the background trauma element of, you know, how we're creating such psychotic children in some of these examples? I mean, in my professional life, no, I don't work with children in my personal life. Hell yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, and just like with anything there is no one answer, right? Anyone who tells you there's an answer to why that person shot up a school, this and this is exactly why, don't don't believe them, right? I say the same thing about suicide. Suicide is so nuanced. We have research that shows things that put people at risk, particularly certain populations, particularly first responders. I 
like my dissertation was all on suicide among first responders with a particular framework, which I kind of want to touch on because you mentioned it. But um, anyone who tells you, hey, that's that's why there's so many factors that go into it. Right. So, you know, my own little personal research life, you know, I just yeah, I dive into it like what do we know about their background? What was their childhood like? What was their, I mean, you know, a very common theme that you see among them is, is that they were bullied. Um, and again, is every kid who gets bullied going to shoot up a school? Of course not. 99.9% of them are not. So this is why you can't point to this kid was horribly bullied. Right. But can it be a, a factor that goes into it? Absolutely. So I think we, as, as a society, a lot of people, um, when I do my trainings um, with these fire departments I'm working with, you know, I, I kind of that my first intro training is, is to just kind of be like two things, physical and mental is not separate. And mental health is not as clean cut as we see the 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 medical health, meaning like if I have a sore throat, I'm like, I think I might have strep. I go to the doctor, I get tested. You have it or you don't. It's not like, well, you might kind of have it, right? Mental health is not clean cut like that. You can't just give someone a test and be like, yep, you're a sociopath, you know, like, <laughs> so there's so much more that that goes into it. But anyways, getting back to what you asked, um, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. Common ones we see are bullying, childhood trauma, um, you know, really messed up, to put, the, to put it frankly, relationships with their parents, um, all not surprising, you know, backgrounds. Well, that's what. You know, I was going to say what kills me. It's a bad choice of words, but that's what I find so frustrating is when this happens. And we had one, you know, in Parkland, one of the most horrific ones here in Florida, actually down the road from where I'm sitting right now. Um, I see the same thing every single time pro gun, anti gun. That's it. Those two, you know, yeah. dipshit groups fight with each other. And those poor children, those devastated families have to deal with their grief and nothing gets changed. Mm -hmm. And when, again, you start creating this entire jigsaw puzzle of all these different elements, as, as you touched on childhood trauma, bullying, the, the psych meds that some of these kids are on, mm -hmm. the video game usage, sleep deprivation. I mean, you know, the, the operational conditioning, all these things. Um, you know, you start to build a picture that it's all of it. Now, you know, I've always said, should you be able to buy a 50 cal in a store in a, in a town somewhere? I don't think so. Armor mm -hmm. penetrating sniper rifle. That's my personal thing. No. But do you smite guns off the face of the earth in a country where a lot of bad people have guns? Also, no, you know, right. but that can't be the only conversation. But if we're not looking at the mental health side of these children, yeah. um, you know, and even in the schools themselves, I mean, we have a system at the moment where our children are being taught to pass a test so a school can get funding. Mm -hmm. That is such a broken system in itself as well. We have multi-generational trauma that's created addiction in families, that's separated families, that's created sexual abuse and domestic violence in households. Yeah. It's also contributing to this. And you yeah. don't hear any of these things put side by side in these conversations. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear you saying all that because I have the same reaction, you know, and I'm like, we can't point to this one thing, you know, particularly, you know, something that I agree, I'm not getting into the politics of it in any sense, but like, you know, uh, I don't think these children ha should have easy access to these guns by any means, but, you know, um, there's a reason why that kid wanted to get that gun or there's a reason why that kid grabbed a gun a lot more behind the gun than, than the gun itself. Right. So, um, so much, you know, I mean, some of these cases, uh, I'm going blank. There's just so many. The most recent one, the horrific one. Um, the Ovalde one? 
Yes. You know, like when you start seeing what this kid was posting on YouTube or like, you know, people knew kind of this person was, there's something wrong with him and, you know, there's something going on. And it's like, this was a longstanding issue. Right. And, and I think, you know, I've heard that some people think that when you say mental health, it's giving them an excuse. No, like this, this is a evil act. This is horrific, but that still has to do with mental health. Right. It's not coming from like, Oh, we need to help this person. But um, you know, there's so many different things that this person was obviously at this point struggling as an understatement, you know, I mean, use whatever word, you know, at this point it had gotten to a point of evil, but um you can't just point to one thing. No, exactly. And that's why this, you know, these conversations are so important. You know, you take yeah. away, like you said, the political and the, the, the well-being of a child should never be a political issue. The well-being yeah. of a nation as a virus comes through, you know, an obese, overweight nation, that should not be politicized as well. It should be middle of the road, you know, yeah. health information. So well, you talked about your dissertation on suicide and first responders. So I, I want to make sure that we don't miss that. Yeah. So you had mentioned uh when you're talking about suicide, you know, feeling like, like you're a burden. Um, so my dissertation looked at, uh, PTSD among firefighters in relation to suicide from uh, a particular framework. Have you heard of the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide? I have not. Okay. So it was, um, developed by a really, really, really successful and prominent researcher, um, uh, Thomas Joyner over at Florida state university. Um, and, you know, his whole life is dedicated to studying suicide. But uh, the idea of, I'm just going to call it the IPTS because it's a long, long name, um, is that the desire to die on its own is not sufficient enough for someone to take their own life, which like people think that when someone kills themselves, it's because they didn't want to live. Sure. Absolutely. That's an important aspect of it. Right. But that on its own according to this theory, is not enough for someone to die by suicide. We see time and time again, every single year, something like 10 million adults in the U.S. aged 18 and over report having serious thoughts about killing themselves, you know, having a plan, having serious thoughts about wanting to die and kill themselves and about 1.2 attempt, um, not necessarily complete, but attempt, right? Still way too many people, but we see a huge gap. Right. I mean, almost 90 percent of these individuals who report thinking about it don't actually do it. Right. Why is that? Um, so what this theory posits is that in order to die by suicide, you one need to have the desire to die. And two, you need to be capable, have the ability of, to die by suicide. So when we think about the desire to die, that's where that burdensome burdensomeness comes in. So it says the desire to die when these two factors are present for an extended period of time becomes really dangerous. And that's thwarted belongingness, which basically means you just don't feel like you belong at all. You're an outcast and perceived burdensomeness. So that is, I am a burden to others. They'd be better off without me. You know, me being around is just hindering them, um, which, you know, if um, it sounds like you've had direct experience with colleagues or people, you know, who died by suicide, you know, this might be some things you've, you've heard. It's something I hear very, very often among um, the people I work with. Um, so those two things, and this is a particularly, I think this theory really applies to firefighters um, because of that 
capability side of things. So when we think about the ability to die by suicide, this theory posits that the, the what makes up the ability to die by suicide are a couple of things. One, um, we are created as humans evolutionarily to self for self-preservation. I mean, we are evolutionarily wired to avoid death and pain, right? If there you were walking across the street and a car turned and started veering towards you, you wouldn't have to think, what should I do? You move, <laughs> right? Your body immediately gets you to move, right? We are we are evolutionarily wired to do that. So when someone takes their own life, they are going against every single biological evolutionary wire that they have. So how do you get to that point? Um, two things, one being um, a decreased fear of death through basically repeated exposure to trauma, right? So this could be in your civilian populations, people who've experienced tons of trauma, or it really applies to your first responders and combat veterans, you know, these people, first responders who are constantly exposed to trauma, death. I've seen it before, doesn't bother me anymore, right? I hear that among my first responders all the time, not, not necessarily even the ones that are suicidal in any way, but it's just kind of like desensitized, right? The other aspect too is um, an increased tolerance to physical pain and discomfort. Because again, that's another aspect of typically, you know, even if someone really like wants to die, they're like, I don't want to be alive anymore. They have thoughts about how they kill themselves. It's like, well, how am I going to do it? I, you know, if I take those pills, like what if it doesn't work? What if I'm in pain? What if, you know, pain comes into, into it? So in order to actually act on what you're thinking, you have to push through that, that evolutionary barrier and have the ability to um, overcome fear of death and overcome fear of pain. So that's what I looked at in the sample of firefighters um, examining associations between PTSD and suicide I also examined in that distress tolerance, which falls into um, the the aspect of uh, uh, increased tolerance to pain. So distress tolerance is physical and emotional. Physical is like, you know, how long can I hold my hand in ice before I take it out? You know, how long can I tolerate this pain? Emotional is like, you know, how well do you manage emotional pain? Um, so in, in the research showed, my, my study found that, you know, really perceived burdensomeness along with an increased tolerance to pain and a decreased fear of death was kind of the most risky, risky combination. And I don't think that that, I'm sorry, it was thwarted belongingness. I don't think that that is particularly shocking because cohesiveness is such a huge part of fire culture. And so when someone feels like they don't belong for whatever reason, they're being ostracized, that's a huge risk factor for firefighters um, that could potentially lead to something like suicide. Well, firstly, thank you. I think, I think was it Steve Farina, one of my guests recently did actually talk about that. I just, I forgot the name of that actual title, but I mean, you explained it in a very, very different way as well. So add another layer to my understanding. Firstly, with the sense of burden, when you think back to the old rhetoric towards suicide, oh, it's so selfish. How could they do that to their family? 
And then you reframe it to this person's mind. And I've talked about the evolutionary element too. Like our goal is to carry on our lineage. So our goal is to stay alive, which is why you go to the end of a, a tall building. There's that invisible hand going, whoa, 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 what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Step back. Yeah, yeah. But when, so when we say to them, think of your kids, think of your family, don't do this to someone who feels like they're a burden to their kids and their family, you, to me, you're saying the polar opposite of what needs to be said. And yeah. the, to me, the, the awareness posters need to say, yeah, as you said, are you feeling like, you know, ostracized? Are you feeling like you're not part of, of you know, your team anymore? And most importantly, are you feeling like a burden? Yeah. To me, that is the red flag trigger point where you need to pick up the phone or reach out. Mm-hmm. So exactly what you're saying, you know, I highly recommend that people don't, in, you know, in crisis interventions say, well, think about your family. No, don't do that because that's, again, putting another layer of shame and guilt on this person, right? They're already thinking that there's such, you know, what I hear the most is I'm toxic. I'm, I'm, I'm a sore in the family. Like I, you know, I just bring them down. They have to deal with me all the time. They'll be so much better off without me, you know? And so while I understand and validate, I've worked with a lot of families who have, have had loved ones um, die by suicide. And, and they're validated, you know, a lot of emotions go into that and they get angry at times. Like, how could they do this to us, you know? And that's all validated. But this perspective from society that taking your own life as a selfish thing, it's just so far from the whole picture um, and actually so far from what that person is actually experiencing. I always like to say that suicide itself is the most catastrophic consequence of struggles with mental health. I don't see the suicide itself as being the mental illness or the mental issue. It's I have nowhere to go at this point. Like this is the only outcome I see in their head. Like you said, you said kind of like psychosis, almost like a delusion that like, this is the only solution. This is the best solution for me and for those around me. Right. Which isn't true, but in their head, they've convinced themselves of that. So it's, it's like saying that um, type two diabetes is a symptom of high blood sugar. No, no, no. That's the outcome. You know, it through through diet, exercise, et cetera, or lack thereof, you might end up with type two diabetes, right? Suicide to me is the same way. It's not, it doesn't just come about for the most part, you know. I mean, ever. Doesn't just come about. It is something that someone's been struggling with, the anxiety, the sleep deprivation, the alcohol use, the whatever it is. And then sometimes there's a tipping point. Sometimes someone can't identify a tipping point, but it doesn't just come out of nowhere. And that's what's important for people to know. Well, you hit on a hot button. I was about to get to anyway, and I'm sure people listening are like, oh, there we go. James is going to talk about sleep deprivation again. I threw my eyes and obviously witnessed within myself 14 years working mostly departments with 56-hour work weeks, so 24 on, 48 off. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get to go home, if you're not told I don't know, 24 hours in, you got to stay for another 24 because they're understaffed and mismanaged um so i've witnessed you know that element on myself and then i start exploring and getting all these people on from the sleep medicine world and also you know they're experts in the military and the first responder professionals i mean all these different branches and you get the exact same response when it comes to sleep deprivation and mental health so mm-hmm. talk to me about that element especially in in the populations that you work with sleep deprivation is one of the most powerful detriments to mental health that there can be. Uh, it's incredible. 
the impact that sleep or lack thereof can have on someone's physical and mental health. Sleep deprivation is associated with every type of psychiatric and medical comorbidity you can imagine. And not only that is, okay, so I recently got hired on by California BLM to help them develop their mental health program. And kind of, again, one of my pitches going in is really to think about how the physical and the mental, these are not two separate entities. They go hand in hand. Whatever whatever is going on physically is going on mentally and vice versa. And sleep is one of those things. You don't think about sleep. People typically don't think about sleep as mental health. It's sleep. But everything that you're doing with your sleep or lack thereof can affect not only, okay, I feel groggy. I don't feel myself today. I didn't I haven't slept for days because I've been on shift. That is affecting your uh, ability to make complex decisions, which is important when you're a first responder, your reaction time, which is important when you're a first responder. And it affects uh, how you view the world around you, um, how you respond to situations, which could create anxiety, which could create depression, which could create anger, all these different things. Sleep is so, so, so intimately tied to mental health. You know, I could spend 18 hours of trainings on it. It's so important. So hypothetically, if you could tell a fire department to give their responders more rest and recovery and, you know, show them that the savings financially would actually be huge as well because you wouldn't have these responders falling apart X amount of years into their career. Um, you know, how, how would you present that to a department as far as, you know, what you've seen of the impact of this on physical and mental health and, um, you know, the, the longevity that you could forge in their career and their own health if they actually invested in their people up front? That's a great question. I mean, that's kind of like my... Um my take home point, uh, in, in these introductory trainings that I do with like command staff. Okay. Cause we hear about mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health. Some of these people who aren't bought in yet, it's like, you know, I need to see it. What, what does this mean on paper? What are these numbers we see here? Right. Sleep deprivation or lack thereof, uh, or sleep deprivation or, or good sleep, bad sleep, whatever it is. I show them what happens to their numbers, generally speaking, in their department, in their organization. When you have a firefighters whose mental health is prioritized, which includes sleep, right? So this includes allowing them time to recover. Um, you see that pop up in terms of job satisfaction. Now that's a general term, but meaning um, you have a generally quote, quote, healthier workforce. And by healthier, you ha allow people to recover physically and mentally. You allow them the resources if they're unable to do that, to reach out to, you know, peer support or, you know, to reach out to a mental health professional without stigma, without fear of it affecting their promotion, et cetera. So you have a, a generally more satisfied workforce and you have productivity go up, right? And by productivity, I mean, decrease in accidents on the job, decrease in line of duty deaths. Because as we just talked about, sleep is associated with so many like in the moment things, complex decision-making, reaction time, concentration, all of these things could, you know, you see someone trip and fall, you know, with wildland firefighting, they're out on assignment, they trip and fall, uh, you know, and then boom, they're out, you know, their ankles out or whatever. And you don't look at that and think mental health and 
maybe, maybe you can't point to something specific, but there's a lot of times where that person hasn't slept in four days, right? That's going to affect their physical ability and agility, right? So we see the productivity go up and we see that by decreased line of duty deaths, decreased on the job accidents, et cetera. With a more satisfied workforce, more productive workforce, then you start to see um, increased retention, which is a big thing for some of these organizations, um, uh, increased recruitment, decreased turnover, right? So you kind of have to lay it out of like, this is more than just like mental health and like, I want to feel good, you know, which is also really important, but it actually bleeds over into the effectiveness and the success of your department and organization and how you function as a whole macro macro look at things. So that's kind of like my, my take home point is this is more than just mental internal mental health and how we feel on the inside. It affects how things look on the outside as well. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing that I look retroactively now, at some of these horrendous accidents, I had uh, Corey Iverson's widow on, um, he he fell he tripped um during a wildland fire and was killed mm-hmm. uh, you think about people that fallen off aerials got lost in primary searches in fires these intersection wrecks that you know not only we lose responders but also civilians that are hit how many of those were related to sleep deprivation and then you factor in the addiction because i mean I, I i always get people to question this the fire academy mm-hmm. the day one of your people how many morbidly obese alcoholics are standing there yeah None. Right, right. How many of you got 10, 20 years later? So you cannot argue that it's, you know, this the, the, the job is having an effect on these previously motivated, in shape, mentally resilient men and women. And so by investing in these people, and I think in the fire service, the, the municipal fire service, the 2472 schedule to me would be would be ideal. I mean, for now, I mean, to me, I think we should be working less than someone who, you know, works in a bank, to be honest, if you're going to be yeah. awake at three in the morning, pulling someone out of a fire, but at least getting down to a 42 hour work week. But the mindset is, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's the way we've always done it. And it's usually the people saying that are ones nine to five, sit behind a desk with a nice shiny gold badge and they piss off home to their family. Whilst the real men and women are out there grinding for 80 hours a week and then wondering why they're sticking a gun in their mouth 10 years later. Yep, absolutely. And it kind of goes in line with what we started talking about in the beginning with injuries. Again, you know, the sentiment that I've come across around, you know, some of the the toughest, you know, in, in the, in the fire, you know, in, in fire and first responders, like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm great, you know? And I'm like, great. I'm, I'm glad you're doing so well. Um, however, if in the background, you're not doing anything to make sure that you have um, basically a, a mental health or safety for your, your mind, it's possible that in the future that might start to deteriorate, right? It's like, with my body, right? My body didn't start breaking down until I was almost 20, but you know, that's 15 years of hardcore, you know, pounding on my body. Right. And it took some time for my body to start to deteriorate, but it did because I didn't take care of it. I think of the same, if you're driving a car and you're driving really recklessly, you're just pounding the gas all the time. You're not getting your oil changes done. You're not doing any of that. Your car's going to run for some time, but eventually 
there's going to start to be some problems. And that's kind of what I see, particularly in the first responder culture is like, these are some of the healthiest men and women, both physically and mentally. I mean, they are very like resilience and strength is a very important aspect of first responder culture. And we don't want to take that away completely, but this aspect of just power through it and, you know, keep your mouth shut, keep working. I'm tough. I can do this for 15, 20 years like that can be really detrimental, particularly when people retire. Um, so yeah, it can cause a lot of issues in the long term. Absolutely. Well, you talked about BLM. For people listening, that's the Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter. Oh, yes. Yeah, maybe they have their own mental health you know, <laughs> no, yeah, portion as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that obviously is, is a wildland-focused agency. Mm-hmm. What are some of the idiosyncrasies that you've seen in the wildland community versus the municipal fire service? Uh, a, a big one is that they go on assignments, right? And then they get laid off. Um, and that's a big, big aspect because, you know, in structure fire, um, you know, whatever department, every department has a different um, shift schedule. But, you know, you're on two days, off three days, on three days, off four days, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, in wildland fire, you once the season starts, which is around like springtime, um, they're on, right? So they can leave for weeks at a time for their pre-assignment training. And then when they're on assignment, they could be gone for months on end, right? And then around this time of the year, now is when they're getting laid off. Um, so they get laid off and then it's like, what do we do now, right? That's where you start to see a lot of the drinking start to increase and the depression and the anxiety and all of that. So it's almost like for half the year, they have this identity. I'm a firefighter. I have my my people with me, the cohesiveness. And then they kind of get ripped from that. And it's like, I don't have anyone I can relate to. My peer support is gone. Um, you know, some like significant financial issues. How am I going to, how am I going to make money? Um, so I'd say those are the, that's the biggest difference between the two um, in terms of the, uh, logistical nature of their of the the roles and how it can affect mental health the rest can be very similar in terms of like what you see in terms of common issues experience but i'd say that's that's a major aspect of it now another common denominator that's definitely sprung out from people especially in law enforcement who were injured on the job wearing their uniform and then ultimately discarded by that department um but i see this also in people just day to day when it comes to the micromanaging you know element is that kind of organizational stress organizational betrayal which i think is another elephant in the room in this mental health conversations and then you talk about you know that that tribalism even in the wildland community you're useful to us now you're not you can just leave and then we'll call you again Mm -hmm. talk to me about that element as well because it's not normally in most mental health conversations Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. So that's something I talk a lot about um, is, have you ever heard the term moral injury? Yes. Yeah. So moral injury is basically a, um, when there's some kind of violation of your values and morals, whether it be you perceive yourself as having violated them or you perceive someone else as having violated them. Right. And that's, this term really came to fruition based out of um, combat veterans who had killed in war, right? And you can understand the moral dilemma there. Um, But it really, 
over the years I've seen kind of really apply to first responders in a couple of different ways. Um, one of them being betrayal from leadership, betrayal from command or betrayal from from crew members. Again, that cohesiveness in the fire culture is so, so, so prominent and important that if there's any type of perceived breach in that, that perceived loyalty or breach in that loyalty, it can cause moral injury, which typically results in feelings of guilt, shame, anger. Um, another big one I see, uh, you know, that's not talked about as much um, or ha- doesn't t- typically have a name put to it is, and this is true for wildland structure, whatever it is, is moral injury pertaining to uh, fire family versus non-fire family, right? So you value family, you value loyalty, and you're completely dedicated and loyal to your fire family, your crew, and then you have, you know, wife, husband, kids at home, and you, you're fully dedicated to them. But a lot of times in this profession, these two things uh, there's discord between the two of them, right? It's difficult to be fully there and fully there, either physically at times. There's a lot of firefighters who miss out on children's birthdays and anniversaries, et cetera. And mentally, right? You're doing a very, very important and very, very emotionally and physically draining job. And then you get home and then you have to deal with the home life stuff. And it's hard to be there even mentally. So I see that a lot in terms of the the vile feeling like, I, you know, what kind of father am I? What kind of husband am I? Um, you know, I want to be there for my non-fire family, but I also need to be there for my fire family. Um, so I think that's where moral injury related to suicide as well really plays in as to where there's like a very serious moral injury that someone has experienced. I'd never really thought of it in the moral injury category before but one event that i had in my last department um where there was almost zero camaraderie brother sisterhood you know pride in the in the fire service it was awful but it should have been one of the best budget wise they protected a very famous famous theme park they should have been forging a path Mm -hmm. um and we had lost one of the guys i got hired with to an opioid overdose and I had volunteered with with a crew to go down to the funeral, which was about two hours away in the ladder truck. We put our ladder up. There's a, his previous department, they sent one guy with a ladder as well when we hung the flag, mm-hmm. went through the service, waited for the family to, to leave. And then we broke everything down, grabbed something to eat and went back. Mm-hmm. On the way back, my lieutenant got a phone call telling him that he needed to apologize to all the crews because we took too long at the fire department and they had to run calls. When I got back, I walked into this room that we're all sitting in lazy boys. No one was on a call. And I said to him, please tell me this is a fucking joke. Yeah. And they all then, it was a nauseating display of, of, you know, poor me. And I was so angry that I had to go home Otherwise, I genuinely would have broken someone's face. I mean, there's no question about it. But that, when I psychoanalyzed that event, it was the highest form of organizational betrayal. We had a brother firefighter in a four-station department who had died, in my opinion, line of duty death from, you know, because he was a a firefighter and a paramedic prior to even coming to this department. And the lack of empathy and care, they were more concerned about the fact they had to run one or two extra calls, of which they're paid to do anyway, 
than be part of this and also be compassionate to the people that went to the actual funeral to yeah. lay him to rest. And it was, I can't describe that it was anger while well, through tears and, and until then they all thought I was crazy. I was, a, I was labeled the crazy one then. Mm -hmm. So yeah, from that lens and that was when the switch went off and, you know, for yeah. me, I was, I was always going to leave that shithole. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, that's, had I been in a, in a near crisis position, that event could have absolutely sent me to a dark place. Yeah. That's, that's horrible for one. And unfortunately that's, as I'm sure, you know, how there's, there's a lot of fire departments that operate that way and it's horrific. And that's a perfect example of a moral, morally injurious event, which like you said, when we go back to what we've, we've been talking about today of like, you know, what puts someone over the edge, you can't just point to one thing. Right. Um, you know, that could have been, that could have been a, a really dangerous experience for you. Right. Unfortunately, it wasn't to the point of dangerous, but you know, that could be something that can, that can then push someone a little bit closer to something like suicide. Right. Um, so that's a, that's actually a perfect example of like a morally injurious event. So I want to make sure that we talk about your transition into, you know, creating your own, um, you know, sensor of solutions for military and first responders. So talk to me about what made you make the jump to, you know, own your own business. And then one thing we haven't touched on is, is it's been all about, you know, diagnoses and, and the problems and the contributing factors, but the smorgasbord of solutions that are available to people that are struggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I opened up my um, own business this year. It's called the Center for Trauma, Anxiety, and Stress. So a main focus of what I do is, um, is building awareness, knowledge, um, mental health programming for um, fire departments, organizations. Um, that's a, a really big part of what I do. Um, I also, of course, you know, specialize in working with veterans and I work with trauma exposed civilians as well. But um, first responder mental health is definitely my passion. Um, you know, I had made the decision to do this like a couple years ago. So just to give you like an idea of like a timeline of becoming a clinical psychologist takes a long time. So I told you, you know, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, obviously four years. Then I went and got a master's degree. I finished it in one year. And then straight from there, I got a full-time research assistant position at the National Center for three years um, because you the PhD programs, clinical PhD programs are so competitive to get into that you need like years of experience doing research for you to even be considered. So um, then I got my PhD um, for people that takes anywhere from four to six years. Then you have to do one year of clinical pre-doctoral clinical internship before you can actually get awarded the degree. And then you have to do a postdoctoral fellowship if you want to be licensed. Now, if you want to be licensed, that means you work with um, people. Uh, like you, you know, do therapy, whatever it is. Some people, you don't have to get licensed if you're going to just do academia and never come face to face, you know, working clinically with a person um, and just do research. You don't have to get licensed, but a lot of people do. So postdoctoral fellowship can take one to two years. Um, you know, I did a one year postdoctoral fellowship, clinical fellowship. So if you add that all up, you know, that's 10 to 12 years of time. Um, by the time I was towards the end of my PhD, I was extremely burnt out, extremely, my mental health was not doing well. Um, it's really, I've always said it's a, it's a system that 
you know, trains you to be an expert in mental health while, while destroying your own, the irony of it. So you're not paid any money. You're working 60 to 80 hours a week for those four to five years. Then you go to internship where you're working a full-time clinical job and you're getting paid about $25,000 for the year. And then you're officially a doctor and you're getting paid about $50,000. Um, so it's, it's not only exhausting and, and un, um, you can't live off of that. Um, impossible. You know, so you got to have loans or if you're lucky enough, have family members or people or, you know, a partner to support you. Um, But it's for me was really demoralizing by the time I got to that point. You know, I I just kind of got to the point where I'm like, I want to be able to do what I'm passionate about and what I love doing without any of the red tape, Um, you know, without. I don't know, almost like in a rebellious nature, like I, I just don't this is. I've had such great experiences. I've had, I had some supervisors that, I mean, most of my supervisors were just wonderful human beings who I still keep in touch with and who I consider mentors who I continue, continue to reach out to, but the system itself really wore me down. And I really at times took away from my joy and my, my passion for what I was doing. Right. I mean, it was, it was just difficult to get through the day because you're just so exhausted. So I was like, I want to get to the point where I am building my own, um, business and helping people as many people as I can without any red tape, you know, without like bureaucratic red tape in the VA um, and doing what I, what I love to do. And so I had decided a couple of years ago going into internship, like once I'm done, you know, I got to get, I got to go to postdoc because I want to get licensed and then I'm opening up my own business. And I put my mind, like set my mind on that. And I did everything during my internship. I was going home and um, you know, uh, uh, working on my business plan, you know, on postdoctoral fellowship, I was building my website and doing all these different things and putting all that together, right? Because I knew I wanted to launch off of there. I'm also a professor. So during that time, I, I realized that, you know, I'm not going to immediately start making money, right? When I, you know, launch my business. So I wanted to make sure I had something too. So I, I teach, um, um, uh, at, at psychology classes at, at universities. Um, so that provides me with kind of like an income and, and insurance and all that while I'm building my practice. So that's kind of how I, the mindset of like, I, I just can't work this nine to five of like, you know, me trying to help people, but some other red tape holding me back, you know, because there's some, someone in HR isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so I can't do what I need to do. There was so much, so much limitation there. Um, so I've really, really loved it so far and it has been the best decision I ever made. I've talked about this quite a few times on the show, the autonomy that I gained from mm-hmm. focusing purely on doing, this is what I do now. This is my, yeah. my profession. Um, scary, just like you, you know, it's not exactly uh, a money maker and never intended it to be, but removing all of those barriers to entry, all of that wasted anxiety and stress that is completely pointless through the bureaucracy of a lot of these places that you and I have worked was one of the most liberating experiences of my life. Yeah. And and like you're talking about, you know, I, I listen, don't get me wrong. Like I had made my mind up, but there were many days where I'd like, oh my God, am I, am I making a mistake? What am I doing? What if I, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? Right. Um, and so that's a real thing. And I'm not going to say like, I just made up my mind and I was just all for it and had no doubts. So um, that definitely happened, but I kept telling myself, think about all the time, literal time 
but your energy that you're spending on these jobs or on, on the, you know, if you, if you did the safe bet and was like, okay, I'm just going to actually get a you know job at the VA or wherever it is and do that. And then build up my private practice on the side. I'm like all that literal time, but also energy, mental energy, physical energy that you could just throw all the way into your business. Right. Um, that is worth more. And then at the same time, I started sleeping better. My appetite started to come back more. I mean, it was it was a a very tangible thing for me, you know, just kind of this this huge shift in how I was feeling physically and mentally because the two are tied, right? So it it really was such an eye opener to think of like. I understand that there's people who, you know, you know, I I don't have kids right now. I, you know, I don't, you know, there's people who really might've had circumstances where like, I can't take that risk. Um, and I understand that fortunately I was in a position that I could take the risk. And I was like, listen, my mental health is, I need to start prioritizing my mental health. And so I want to do what, what, my, what my dream is and open up my own business and focus on helping the people I want to help and, and enjoying myself while I do it. And, it is it is a life changer for sure. That's amazing. I can just hear it in your voice even. It's incredible and I can totally relate. Um, I want to get to kind of, you know, agencies and, and those kind of organizations and what you can do for them. But in the mental health space now, I've I've had people on that have had success in so many different ways from stellar ganglion blocks to uh, psilocybin to therapy dogs to equine therapy to surfing and diving and you name it. And obviously just, you know, traditional counseling as well. Mm-hmm. What are some of the tools that you've seen that have worked? Because as you said, you know, there's no one thing as a causation and there's no one thing as a fix either. Yeah. I mean, obviously people, you know, the most common thing is you think therapy and Hey, I, I go to therapy. I, I have a, I see a psychologist like, and it's a huge part of my physical and mental health. Um, and you know, if someone's able to financially time-wise see a, psychologist, someone who specializes, you know, if we're talking about first responders, it's important to see someone who does that. Um, if that's not a possibility for people, it's really interesting to me the um, how so little can do so much. You don't have to do anything huge, right? For one, learning about these things. Psychoeducation is a huge aspect, which is why when I'm working, you know, building mental health programming, psychoeducation is always my first, what I call my first line of defense, right? First line of three lines of defense, like learning more about what the effects of trauma are. Um, You know, what are normal reactions to abnormal events is what I call it, right? People are like, something's wrong with me. You know, I'm experiencing this. I'm like, it would be abnormal for you not to be affected by all these things, Right. Um, so psychoeducation is huge talking about it to people. We haven't really touched much today on the stigma in first, you know, fire culture, first spawner culture, but the impact of voicing, just saying to someone, Hey, I've been really struggling with this has a huge impact. And then along with that, things that when we're talking about substance use and filling that, that glass, just the littlest things that can bring you any type of fulfillment in a day. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. You don't have to go for four hours to go do something, right? If it's, you know, taking an Epsom salt bath, lighting a candle for 10 minutes of your day, right? If you enjoy reading, reading one chapter um, a day or whatever it is, these are little things that people, you know, we, a lot of us, including myself, 
kind of forget to do that really do make an impact on how we're how we're feeling. I mean, those are kind of like the initial lines of defense that I think that get really overlooked because they almost in a way seem too easy. With the the stigma around talking, one thing that I've again observed is, you know, sadly, after the fact, when someone's lost someone, they're like, "Oh man, if they just reached out and and called me." You're talking about someone who's in crisis, whose mind is literally a hurricane at that point. Mm-hmm. And then you also factor in that person's like, "Well, I don't understand. I'm doing fine." And I would, you know, I've said, I've been through a various amount of things, but I truly believe that the pure luck, the Russian roulette in a positive way that my childhood unfolded, as much as there was trauma, there was community. I grew up on a farm, I was surrounded by animals. My dad was a a healer, he was a vet. There's just all these things that prepared me not only to to navigate life, but also to navigate as a firefighter. I was was brought up around blood and guts. And Mm -hmm. I I met people that were royalty all the way through to, to, to gypsies and everyone in between. And I learned the lesson of, you know, a good person and a bad person versus skin color and, you know, socioeconomic status. And so I look back now and go, okay, I was given enough tools to deal with the shit that life also threw at me. Um, So I think one of the discussions that needs to be had is, is that vulnerability to me vulnerability yeah. is a superpower if you really want to be you know lord yourself as a man for example mm-hmm. then be the one that has the courage and the strength to say let me tell you about a time when i was going through some shit you know mm-hmm. my divorce while i was going through medic school and a single father you know it, i mean there's that to me is how you open the door and that is then when those people are going to come from the corner and say yeah. hey can i have a word but yeah. if you're just like hey you know if you're ever struggling give me a call that's that's like putting a, a hotline up on a you know on a pin board in a fire station and be like, well, if you if you're thinking of killing yourself, call this number first. Like it's yep. just not gonna work. hundred percent. What you're talking about is is incredible to me, the power of what I've seen when when someone starts the the chain reaction, lights the fire of like I mentioned to my crew today that I've been really struggling off shift with drinking or I've been you know, unable to sleep because I can't get that call we made last week out of my head. Um, and then all of a sudden, like you said, other people are like, oh, yeah, I've been struggling with that, too. And then they start to kind of like come out of the woodwork like, OK, it's safer for me to do this. So a big a big um, thing that I nail into the brains of command staff is that it really starts from the top down because because of the culture of firefighting, you know, it's hierarchical you know, respect of the leadership. That's all great. If you have a captain or some kind of command staff, that's like, hmm, you know, suck it up. Right. You know, like, yeah, let me know if you're struggling. Like, yeah, no, they're probably not going to do that unless you start talking about it. So not only maybe struggles you've had, but I also encourage people to like to share their triumphs. Right. You know, man, you know, a couple of years ago, I was really struggling. I, I ended up talking to someone, you know, I went to therapy for a little bit or, you know, I ended up doing this or that. And it was really helpful for me. That is so powerful in and of itself in this culture, in firefighting culture specifically, it has such a positive chain chain of reaction of events when that happens. When one person, like you said, breaks past that vulnerability um, variable and past the stigma barrier, and then it allows other people to follow. 
Well, I've seen it even with the podcast. I mean, I, I get messages, but more often, you know, more often than not, the the guest does. Mm-hmm. And some of these people obviously have been at the forefront of of their message for a long time, so it's not new for them. But other people, you know, it may be the first time they've ever come on a show and, and told their story and they're like, James, it was, it was a crazy people were messaging me and calling me and either mm-hmm. saying, thank you for telling your story. It really resonated with me or even more. I thought I was alone. I thought I was weak. And when you told yeah. your story, I realized that, that I, that I'm neither, you know, yeah. and then it's led people towards getting help. And I think that's what people don't understand is you can put up a fucking PowerPoint presentation. This mm-hmm. is how many people we lose every year. Yeah, and like right. you said, it's literally, faceless numbers on a on a on a screen mm-hmm. or you can tell your story like so many brave men and women have and then th- that that's the true idea of a safe space yeah a safe space is a nucleus of someone who has the courage to actually tell their story and invite others to come and tell you know share theirs as well yeah normalize 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 it's what has to happen and how we get to that point of normalizing is again people have to start talking about it. And I think that's why I really put it on kind of like leadership, you know, higher ranking, because typically it trickles down from there. It's less likely possible and I've seen it, but less likely that, you know, uh, you know, second year firefighter, you know, in their crew is going to start talking about that. It's going to be the captain, you know, the, the real impact is going to be the captain that's going to start talking about that. Um, but regardless, even with anyone in the fire service, when they start talking to someone else, it makes a difference, right? I mean, and they have some realistic fears of being judged or being ostracized or it affecting their promotion or other other things. But what starts to happen when you start to, they start to understand and understand that's where the psychoeducation part comes in, that all of these things that they're experiencing are not only understandable and normal reactions to abnormal events, but that almost all of them are experiencing one or more forms of it. I mean, I would, I obviously don't know the numbers here. I would guess that it is very few and far between of an active firefighter that is not experiencing any of these things whatsoever. There's differing levels of functioning and severity, of course, but to not experience any of this would be highly unlikely. Yeah. And you used the word sociopath earlier. I mean, ultimately, if you're unaffected by you know, mutilated children and burned, you know, burned out homes and all these things that we see and, and the cries of family members left behind and you're unaffected by that. That's probably the biggest red flag of this whole thing. You know, you should be feeling flag. these things. I, it's funny the the look on people's faces I, I've gotten when, you know, I've heard so many times of my patients that come in, my, my firefighters that come in and they're like, there's something wrong with me. And they start talking about all these very normal reactions to these things. Like I'm not sleeping. I'm angry. I'm having these thoughts pop in that I can't get out, you know, this call I made and this and that. And I'm like, let's think of it this way. If you went and responded to that pediatric death last week and you walked out of that and it literally didn't affect you at all, what would you think? And they're like, that would be pretty weird. And I'm like, yeah, it would be really <laughs> weird, right? So, you know, it's kind of, it's it's like, again, I like to think of like a perspective and then you just shift it to be like, no, this is actually, you know, if you're looking at something upside down, you're like, no, 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 look at it this way. And you're like, oh, you're right. That would be kind of messed up, you know? Brilliant. Well, I want to get to the, the services you offer with the center, but before I do, just one quick um, point that I want to kind of draw out from you. 
the conversation is definitely out there, albeit sometimes not the entire conversation that we need to have, but at least there is a somewhat an acceptance that the fire service, law enforcement, dispatch, you know, paramedicine, there is a mental health cost to the service. Where I see us really stumbling is, well, what now? And I think the big um, issue is the lack of culturally competent counselors. And you talked about, you know, making sure someone who knows how to how to to treat a, you know a responder and knows you know what we do and knows what we see. And I've heard so many horror stories, and it, and it it really breaks my heart because I've heard horror stories, EAP horror stories, yeah. where people have you know the counselors burst into tears or they've been told to to leave, get out of my office, I can't help you. And that then tells me, well, how many will I never hear because that was the last thing that they did. So just talk to me about that element. You know, what what does someone need to look for as far as a type of counselor and how can we improve the number of mental health professionals, um, you know, their training so that more of them are around? Because it seems like at the moment, you know, that there's a lack of that kind of person. Yeah, this is a really touchy subject for me. It's something I, in my personal life, share with everyone in my life because a lot of people don't understand. The first being that there's differences between a psychologist versus a counselor, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There can be really great counselors or, you know, licensed marriage family therapists. I've met them. I've worked with them. But the difference in training, both clinically and the research background, and everything that goes into having a PsyD or PhD, being a, a doctoral level, um, is very, very, very different. What people don't realize is that Anyone with even just a master's degree can open up their own practice. You know, I don't know if you've ever been on psychology today. Have you ever been on psychologytoday.com? Um, I know of it. Yeah. So it's like where people go to find therapists, um, you know, and you can type in and I'll, I'll look through there and I'll see someone, you know, with a master's degree, you know, licensed master's level clinician, and they'll list their specialties and you can list as many as you want. And it's mind blowing to me. I'm like, you specialize in ADHD, eating disorders, trauma, uh, postpartum depression, uh, schizophrenia, psychosis. I'm like, that is physically impossible. Physically impossible. <laughs> okay. Even for a doctoral level with three PhDs, that's impossible, right? These are all, this is, these are all things you have to really specialize in. So for one, I really encourage people to look out for kind of red flags like that. Um, for someone saying that they specialize in all these different things, like very different things. Right. Um, Secondly, whether it's master's level, doctoral level, whatever it is, it's so important to have someone, like you said, that specializes in first responder culture. Um, it's like me, who's a, an a, a adult um, specialist working with kids. That's a whole different ballgame. And I don't do it because it's not what I specialize in, right? It's, yes, I'm a PTSD and trauma expert, but PTSD and trauma in adults and children look very different, same symptom, same criteria, very different population. Um, so you've got to make sure you have someone who specializes in the population that you're working with. And so when you're working with the military, you want someone who specializes in working with military because they, even if they've never served, they specialize in and know the culture that goes behind it, which really affects how you do evidence-based treatment. Same goes for first responder culture, right? Someone's just working with a first responder. They've never had any experience in it. They don't have any expertise in it. That is going to affect the um, quality, so to speak, of the treatment. Um, so, 
there is a, a really significant lack of true experts in first responder culture. Um, it, you know, first responder um, providers uh, in the U.S. as a whole. Um, there's a couple organizations that you know try and kind of spot and and add people to their list that provide these services, but it, it really is a um, a problem. Um, and so, to be honest, I don't really know where we go from. How do we get more people? Obviously, you know, I can't help. There needs to be people who are interested in working with first responders, but I think it more so should be people looking for help, understanding what to look out for, you know, and what to choose in a mental health provider. Cause there's always going to be those people in the field that are going to say they specialize in 25 different things. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I work with first responders because they had, um, you know, one person they saw five years ago who was a first responder, you know, and they saw him for one month and they're like, I specialize in this, you know? Um, but there is a significant issue when it comes to that, like really a really big issue. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to hear that. I and mean, especially as you've kind of laid out the educational journey and the amount of hands-on experience that you had to get through that. I mean, it does kind of illustrate the the difference between the counselor and the psychologist as well. Mm-hmm. So that being said, you know, if you are fortunate enough to be in the kind of Southern California area, obviously this is something that's specific to you. And, and, and as you mentioned, you're able to help departments develop mental health programs as well. So it kind of let people that are listening know the kind of the, the services that you offer, whether it's departmental or individual for, for your center specifically. Yeah. So I offer a range of services. So as I said before, you know, my main focus is first responder wellness and mental health. So with that said, um, I really kind of get, I get hired on as like a contract consultant for fire departments and organizations like California, uh, Bureau of land management. Um, and what that means is for fire departments that are ready to take the leap. When I say like they, they realize how important this is and they're, and they want to do something about it. They bring someone like me in. And what I do is I kind of from the ground up, start doing things. It's not something as easy as like, okay, I'm going to do therapy for all 5,000 people in this department. Right. Um, there needs to be a foundation set in place. And so that's where I come in. Cause what I start to do is I, a variety of things. I typically do trainings with groups, you know, at different stations with different groups of, of firefighters. It could be on a range of different things. We do just general, like normal reactions to the job, how this culture perpetuates it, um, how um, suicide prevention, what to look out for in yourself and in others, how to address it when it pops up, substance use, alcohol abuse, you know, why do so many firefighters have this problem? So, a lot of this kind of goes with that training, the psychoeducation, just building throughout the department, the awareness and the knowledge of the firefighters, because there's a recent study that came out that was a really great study that where all the firefighters they they interviewed basically said the two biggest barriers to mental health, one being the stigma, which we talked about, two being, I just didn't know. I literally didn't know. I didn't know that that's what that was. I didn't know what to look out for, right? If you don't know what to look out for, you don't know when it's time to get help. And that's a big problem. You don't know it's time to get help until you've hit rock bottom, until there's a real big issue or issues, 
right? So trainings are really important a part of what I do. And then I start building peer support programs. So for those in the department or organization that are interested in interested, which usually there are, uh, you know, a handful of people who are, I train them in skills so that other personnel have peer to peer support. You're more likely to go to someone within the department, right? To go to them for these things. For whatever it is, I, I we've trained at the Houston Fire Department. We had a really effective suicide prevention program, peer support program. So there were several individuals from all different rankings in the fire department who volunteered and wanted to be a part of this and had to spend time training to be kind of a proxy mental health provider, right? And they're not doing therapy. You don't need a degree, any of this. You need someone with a degree like me to train people to do this. But then from then on, that serves as kind of that immediate Hey, I need help with this, or I'm struggling, or hey, hey, I noticed that you know you were acting this way. Why don't you come talk to me? Like, you know, I know I felt this way before. Like, what are you experiencing? Right. So, peer support programming, I help them develop peer support programming. Um, and then from then, you know, providing actual uh, crisis intervention, I respond critical to critical incidents. So, kind of like on call. So, I get flown out and, um, you know, wherever it is flown out or respond if it's close by to a critical incident. So when there's a, you know, particularly tough call um, or some kind of line of duty death or a, a firefighters and high, you know, imminent suicide, something like that, um, they call me in to kind of respond on the scene and not only address the, if there is a, a specific firefighter um, at the time who's in crisis, but also um, you know, if it's a line of duty death or a pediatric call or whatever it is to do crisis intervention and management with the personnel as well. So there's a range of things that I do for the fire departments, um, but that's kind of like the gist of of what I do. Finding a trusted resource is so important. And I think if you listen to the last two hours, I mean, me personally, there's such an alignment with our community. There's such a, you know, the, the way, the way you carry yourself and your background and, and the the, the conversation that we've had truly underlines that you understand our profession, you know, in, in, and then the entire um, jigsaw puzzle is the mental health in the first responder community. So for people listening, where can they find you online and, and uh, you know, try and bring you to their department? Yeah. So uh, my website is www.centertos.com. So that's center, C-E-N-T-E-R-T-A-S.com. Center for Trauma, Anxiety, and Stress. Um, so that's my website. Again, there's you know um, a lot of information about my background and and what I offer there. Um, and from there, you know, there's my phone number on there, my email. So I'm always you know please always reach out to me, people who are listening. You know, if even if even if there's you know you're not the head of some kind of organization who's ready to hire a consultant, I just encourage. Um, people in the first responder community to to reach out, you know, and, you know, I find that through that, even, even just that networking, you know, I mean, even me meeting you, James, you know, was a network through a network through a network and, you know, and here we are. So um, yeah, I encourage people to reach out if they, you know, if they're in a department that's been, you know, murmuring about wanting to have a psychologist come in. Here I am. Beautiful. Well, we've been chatting for over two hours. I want to be mindful of your time. I could talk to you for another two hours easily, <laughs> but I'm going to throw one closing question at you because it's pertinent to you know what you touched on earlier. 
that secondary trauma i've even discovered even from from doing this i mean some of the conversations i have and some of the stories i hear you can physically feel the toll that one single conversation has had mm. what do you do to to offset that yourself what, what do you do to decompress i go to for one i, I mentioned i'm very very open about seeking my own uh, mental health um wellness so i have you know i go to therapy for one um but aside from that um there have been many times where, like you said, I was almost physically ill. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but just off, you know, a, a call was so just, you know, just draining mentally, physically, and spiritually for me. Um, and that's the time where I do those little things that I was talking about, just the littlest thing. I remember one time after a crisis call with this uh, firefighter who was about to kill himself. Um, and a bunch of other things happened in that call. I, uh, got back and I was like, I'm craving a cupcake. I don't even like cupcakes. And, <laughs> and I was like, there's this, it was when I was living in Houston, I was like, there's this craft cupcake place, like 10 minutes away. So I was like, I'm gonna go drive and get myself a cupcake. So I went and just spent like 10 minutes in there picking the most perfect cupcake that I wanted. I went home, a little candle and I ate my cupcake. And just something as simple as that <laughs> was like really nice, you know? So I decompress doing little things. I'm big into Epsom salt baths. I love taking a bath. It's mentally decompressing for me. I'm big on being um, active. That's another thing. So even when I don't physically feel like it, not like when I was talking about earlier, like push myself to the brim, but like, hey, I really enjoy road biking. I got really into road biking I don't feel like it. No, I'm just going to lay on the couch and like, no, no, I'm going to get on my bike and I'm just going to go for a quick ride and just take in the scenery around me, put some of my music I like in my ears. Right. So just these little things. And when you're done doing these little things, decompressing like that, it makes such a difference. And I take my own advice now and I talk to people. I talk to people growing up in my family. Communication was not really a thing. And so I've had to really rewire, rewire myself out of that too. And so I will talk to someone. And even if I feel stupid doing or I'm like, they're not going to understand. They don't need to understand. I just need someone to hear what I'm experiencing. I'll cry. I'll do whatever it is. I'll be bawling. I don't care. And I'm just like, I'm really struggling. And I haven't felt myself. That's what I do. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, the little things I think is that's a really amazing takeaway because you know, sometimes you, your thing is, oh, I'll go to the beach or, you know, insert whatever. And then logistically, that's actually a kind of barrier to entry. But I mean, mm -hmm. one big thing for me is uh, walking my dog. I mean, I yeah. walk out the front door and we've got a beautiful little kind of lake that the path goes around. And mm -hmm. if I can get off my ass and just do that, you know, yeah. you've got exercise, you've got you know, canine therapy, technically, you've got mm -hmm. nature, you've got sunshine, fresh air. And then, as you said, 20 minutes, you come back. You may not be 100%, but you're yeah. certainly going to be moving towards the right direction again. Yeah, absolutely. And I always tell people, even in crisis intervention, right? 10 out of 10 is the most imminent risk of suicide, right? We can just do little things. That's kind of what like uh, dialectical behavior therapy is, just doing these little things to get someone down to even an eight. Hey, that's a win. So what I tell people is doing these little things. When I went and ate my cupcake, does that mean I was just perfect and jolly and ready to move on? Of course not. But like those little things brought me down a little, uh, my distress down just a little notch and any little notch is better than nothing. And that once you start getting just tiny little bits and notches going down, that's where you want to be. And that's why you do those little things. 
Beautiful. Well, Brooke, I just want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. I genuinely could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, but thank you for what you're doing for a profession that I adore as well. I mean, your journey has given you such an incredible insight and the the multifaceted element to so many of the problems that our men and women are suffering from um, is such an important perspective, whether it's violence in our schools or whether it's, you know, suicide. And sadly, Florida here, we've lost multiple just this last couple of weeks, the most recent one from my old department, um, the one prior to the to the theme park one that was two years on the job and threw himself out of a car on a freeway. I mean, so these, I mean, is this, this there's no no sense to it. We had one in, in, in Florida about three or four months ago now. A police officer took his own life and then his girlfriend took her own life, who's also an officer, I think within about a week, and they left behind a, an infant. And so everyone's like, oh, how could you do that? Was, exactly. And that's the conversation we've got to have. No right mind would do that. It doesn't make any sense. So until we start picking apart all these pieces, and if we just talk about fucking 22 push-ups and 5Ks, we're never going to get anywhere. So I, I want to thank you so much for such an incredible conversation today. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, James. This has been awesome. And it's always just so, so refreshing to find someone who was a first responder for so long and, and, you know, enveloped in that culture and in that lifestyle and, and who's doing something about it. I mean, what you're doing is so important and so powerful and it's helping so many people. So it was truly, truly an honor to be here today. Mm-hmm.